0: Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. This is Luke Mason, and my name is David Parker. David, I have a question for you. Do you now? <laughs> I do. Is it crazy to talk about a book that's all about contradictions in order to demonstrate how you can crush the human soul into doing it what you want it to do? Well, is is that not a contradiction in and of itself? I don't know. Well, did you catch like, why are we? <laughs> The question, I've heard it twenty-two times. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I guess it's. I guess it's a kind of a real question, but it's true. But Mm -hmm. it's more of a. Most of your questions are more rhetorical. Yes. Yeah. Or uh, tongue in cheek. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So, is it crazy, or or is it is it crazy only if I don't know it's crazy to talk about it? I think. If you know it's crazy then are you crazy? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's some catch 22. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to be talking about the Joseph Heller novel Catch 22, published in the 50s. I don't know exactly the year and we're just too lazy to look it up right now. In the book cover, we we read the uh 50th anniversary edition simon and schuster this seems to be the one that most people have yeah and apparently it says on here that there's a hulu original series coming soon there is so yes. that's pretty cool i'm gonna look forward to that uh but it says copyright 1955 1961 and 1989 and 2011 so turns I think, out turns out we're not lazy enough to look <laughs> it up <laughs> well it, i'm only looking at the book <laughs> yes the yeah. computer is a whole arm length it's away so i'm not gonna to do, do that <laughs> yeah Uh, Joseph Heller, the guy who wrote this book, was a soldier. Uh, I think he was actually even a bombardier during uh, World War II. And so he represented his experiences and experience of a lot of other people he knew in writing this novel. And apparently when this novel came out, there was a lot of press for it and a lot of marketing. It was quite a big to-do about it, you know? So it was something that was quite anticipated in the culture for when it was being well, i released. think i mean
1: they'd just gone through the wars they were probably feeling a little bit uh upset about all of it happening wonder what it was all wondering what it was all for especially since the uk and the u.s quickly pivoted to rebuilding <laughs> germany yes like very rapidly yes it's like oh okay so we there were our enemies now they're our friends we have a new enemy this is
0: this is ridiculous. I'd like to reiterate, though, that I obviously know Germany in the Second World War was the enemy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I, well, there's some funny points there to be made about some things in this book in regards to that. Um, this book is one of my favorites for its comedic flair. I really like the style of joke, and we'll, we'll really hammer home or try to hammer home some of the stylistic parts of this book because I think it's a pretty unique book in the way it's told the way the story is told is it's one that jumps back and forth and through time so like on any given chapter you're not totally sure which part of the story you're in i think it takes place over like a year or like maybe eight months kind of thing
1: yeah it's there's not a lot of continuity to it no just kind of it's all over the place. It actually reminds me a little bit of the style of Infinite Jest. Okay, not yeah. uh, not obviously they're they're vastly different time periods mm. and and very different quality of of work. But it's just it's very hard to get into. Yeah. So if you're reading this and you're like, I don't know how I feel. Keep going. Mm-hmm. It's not about the narrative. Like so many people read books for a narrative and (laughs) we talk about
0: narrative a lot yeah this book's not about narrative no and i the reason why it occurred to us to do this book i think this book is pretty different from a lot of the other books we've done so far in that it's kind of a little bit more explicit in what it's saying and it's probably like more in line with kurt vonnegut than Mm -hmm. anything else oh yeah and and so cat's cradle is similar and i well i don't know this for sure but I, i remember reading something somewhere that vonnegut and heller were friends so they knew each other. So yeah, it's definitely more in the kind of dark, comedic, American style of literary, of novels, right? You know, you definitely get that sense into it. And the reason why I'm, I'm just, I was just kind of thinking about this today, like Catch-22 was a book ostensibly written to point out the absurdity of the bureaucracy in the army. Which, <laughs> yes, this needs it, to be written. Uh, yeah, like the absurdity of authority for authority's mm-hmm. sake. And I think it's a really good meditation on bureaucracy because it's bureaucracy in the most deadly game. Do you know what I mean? Like... In the middle of a war, <laughs> yeah, people's lives are on the yeah. line, and, yeah. and paperwork if shuffled wrong means you're dead. Yes, and I, <laughs> or at least written dead, yes. and, then, yeah. and then yeah, and then officially dead, no matter how the protestations that you put up that you're actually still alive. <laughs> <laughs> and so, while I was thinking about that, it's like, man, yeah, like kind of the bureaucracies we might be dealing with, and the bureaucracies you'd be dealing now at the West are like. They kind of just annoy you, maybe, or waste your time or are frustrating, or you're like, Why is this? But for these guys in this book, a fuck up of bureaucracy could mean they're just dead. Which is absurd, and I think that's the beauty of this book, is mm-hmm. it
1: captures you told me this before I ever read it, it captures the absurdity of war. Yeah. And it captures it it captures it in a way that really makes you question a lot of the <laughs> assumptions that yes. you carry yes.
0: in life. And uh
1: and a lot of the assumptions of the culture seems yeah. to carry.
0: But I realized, other than maybe South Park, we haven't done many deliberate satires before. Do you know? Like, yeah, that's this, true. This book is deliberately satirical about this. And so this might be a little bit nerdy or inside baseball for what we're trying to do with this podcast. But there are some insights in here. But it the, the main thrust is kind of why we're doing this. Because it's like, we I think just reading it, you're like, oh, this is so important to talk about, to notice it when it's creeping in into other things. And Heller obviously wrote it so that he saw it creeping into the most deadly thing, which is a war or a military, you know? And so I'll try and give a bit of a plot rundown. <laughs> Good luck. It's basically, there's the main character, his name is John Yosarian and he just goes by Yosarian or Yo-Yo sometimes <laughs> in it and he is this disgruntled bombardier who is basically questioning every decision that the army is making but he's he's a cog in the wheel and he just can't he just really has to go along with everything and he's fighting it tooth and nail he has so many shenanigans that he tries to do to get out of doing all of his missions Every chapter is a different character's name or like a location, but mostly other characters. And we're given like basically how their story interacts with Yosarians. And then there is a kind of mini secondary main character, the chaplain. We probably get his perspective the second most out of any character. But this is an ensemble cast because you need all these different players in the bureaucratic game doing their bureaucratic things to make it the nightmare that <laughs> Yosarian experiences it as all the time. But not just Yosarian. Like no, a lot of the other people. Everyone is experiencing this nightmare
1: together. Even the people who are making the nightmare are experiencing the
0: nightmare. Yeah, right? they're, they're foregoing their own nightmare. And yeah, that's actually one of the crazy interesting parts of it is that at every level, the people are just figuring out how to cover their own asses. Even the generals. Which is so <laughs> common in organizations. And yeah. it's, it's it breeds cowardice. And definitely not honesty.
1: No, no. <laughs> like lying through your teeth
0: just because you have some agenda at yeah. this point. Yeah, And so I'm going to read uh, a line or a, or a paragraph, not, not even a paragraph, but it's from the very first page of the book. And I think that stylistically, this can help <laughs> set up the way this book is written. So in the very first Uh, chapter very first page yosarian is has checked himself into the hospital because he has not quite jaundice (laughs) yet it could be jaundice soon it's not quite yet so the doctors don't know what to do so here's how heller writes it and this is very indicative of heller's writing style the doctors were puzzled that it wasn't quite jaundice if it became jaundice they could treat it if it didn't become jaundice they could discharge him but this just short of being jaundice at all times confused them (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) and that is a perfect parody of the feeling that all of these soldiers and bombardiers and people who fly the airplanes have because they can't get any answer which is why it's a catch 22 what's so cool is that this the title of this book started Kind of concept we use, or the shorthand of yeah, no-win like situation. How frequently is Catch Twenty Two used in
1: and pu- like public vernacular? Yeah, it's, like it's used all the time. It's just in it, and it's just this guy wrote a book and and titled it this, <laughs> and now everyone talks. Like it's pretty cool to look at the underlying thing behind something like that because usually sayings like that are, are much older.
0: Yes, uh, but yes. this one is is actually fairly contemporary mm-hmm. but prevalent. Yeah, and I mean that's why. I think it's so beautiful when a piece of art saturates culture to make you understand something better. And this is maybe the best example of it because it's just, it's the title of the book. It's not even like a part of the book. Well, it is a part of the book. And most people probably haven't read the book. They Mm -hmm. use it. It's just, it's that,
1: it permeated that far. Yeah.
0: And so then uh, I, I forgot to mention just as a setup, like there's this, base on a fictional island of pianosa which is in the mediterranean sea just south of italy or beside italy i can't remember exactly where and so these so, uh, these airmen fly in their bombardiers bomb the germans and the and the italian armies that they're fighting and I, this is it's a really hard plot to explain because it jumps back and forward in time so much basically all of the authority figures keep raising the missions on the men just before they get to them. <laughs> so if you have to fly 50 missions, by the time you get to 48, they've raised it to 55. By the time you get to 52, they've raised it to then 60. then there's Crazy Joe or whatever who, it's all, who always finishes all his missions and then just waits for them to extend it. Yeah, that's actually a great point how there are so many characters in this book. It's hard to keep track of all of them. And it just means that Heller noticed how many different kinds of people are in the army. You know, yeah, like, it's, I, and that's it's a cool... not a uniform personality. <laughs> no. Like. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like a, uh, how, yeah, what do you do with the one guy who wants to fly more missions than he has to and no one else wants to do yeah. that, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> and we're just talking about to, to max out, like, get
1: to those max missions as quickly as possible? He's kind of like the opposite of y- Yosarian, right? Yeah. Yosarian wants to, like, not fly a mission because he's like, every time I fly a mission, I could die. Mm-hmm. Whereas Joe is like, well, I'm going to fly them as fast as possible and then wait and try yeah. to go home. And every time he's just waiting. And then eventually mm-hmm. it's like, oh, you got to go up again. And it's also how the bureaucracy fucks both
0: <laughs> kinds of people. Up, oh right? yeah, in in just whatever way, because it's it becomes it's all about its own yeah, itself. self perpetuating. Yeah, self perpetuation. And so I really want to mirror what you said at the start in that this is not you. You don't read this book for a great story. I think you read this book because it's actually very funny. It's a very comedic, dark comedic take on what this kind of thing does to people. And that is reflected in Heller's prose. I remember the first time I read this book thinking like, this is just one big joke. Everything in (laughs) this book is one big joke. can explain why Luke likes it so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like there'll be a whole paragraph like that John just when I read where it's like, Oh, and then he was going to go do this, and he was going to go do this, and that's what didn't happen. (laughs) And and, oh, I know that
1: is one of the favorite things for me about his writing is, or he'll. Leave a cliffhanger. Like at the very beginning he's like, Oh, and he that was the moment he fell in love with the chaplain. And then they don't even talk about him falling in love with the chaplain. <laughs> yeah. They don't even talk about the chaplain till the end I of the know, chapter. I know. They don't fall, talk about him falling in love till way later. Yeah. Like,
0: <laughs> so there is like a disorienting aspect to it, which I think is supposed to mirror the feeling of the disorientation you have in the bureaucracy in the first place. Or in war as mm-hmm. well. And I yeah. think that's why I compared it to David Foster Wallace's infinite jest. Mm-hmm. Because
1: that is a disorienting yeah.
0: book. Like you're like, where am I right now? I'm in the head of an addict. Yeah, <laughs> or I'm in, and yeah. and so like this book is it's in the spirit of Vonnegut, but I also think it's in the spirit of Kafka. Like yes. the, yeah, the trial. I haven't read Kafka, so yeah. Well, probably I imagine one day a, a book we could do because it's not very big as the trial by Kafka because it's really good. It's basically about a guy that just gets arrested, not told why, and then eventually at the end he's executed, <laughs> but he's kept uncertain the whole time and the real tragedy of Catch-22 is how all of these human beings are kept uncertain about their lives (laughs) all the time based on what is expected out of them and so before we dive in though to some of the things with the characters I want there were a few more things I wanted to just put out there about the way that this book is written and it's uh, how it is stylistically because I think it'll give more context for listening so there are a handful of what you would call villains in this book. But to me, the worst one is this guy named Colonel Korn, because he seems like the most able to understand what he's doing. Like he chooses to make it harder for other people more than just like covering his own butt type of thing. And he on page 35, he's got a line, the only people permitted to ask questions were those who never did. <laughs> so that there's no questioning. And then Heller goes on to write, as the narrator, the sessions were stopped as it was neither possible nor necessary to educate those who don't question anything. Yeah. And I'm like, that is the center of the bullseye. Yeah.
1: (laughs) You know? That is the articulation of the problem. Like, Mm -hmm. we got the diagnosis now.
0: We are totally open to hearing all of your ideas for improvement, but we only want to hear from the people who don't have any ideas from improvement. Yeah. (laughs) Only the people who regularly don't ask questions are allowed to ask questions. And so, I guess probably theme 101 of this book is weaving two impossible ideas together and then expecting other people to accept that. (laughs) Do you know? Yes. (laughs) Like, like, here, you have to go left and right, right now. You want want to prove that you're crazy? Well, if you are trying to prove you're crazy, you're not crazy. Mm. Well, I'm actually going to read out um, Catch-22. There's a
1: number of different definitions throughout the book, but yeah.
0: Yes, there are, but the very first one is given... (laughs) Yeah, the very first one's very good. ...on page 45 and 46. The context is... Yosarian is trying to get himself grounded from the missions. And he realizes that the only way he can do that is if he's crazy. Because there's a catch, (laughs) or there's a rule in the uh, military that if you're crazy, you don't have to fly missions. And so he wants to say that he's crazy. And then the doctor explains to him that, yes, he's crazy. He won't have to fly the missions if he's crazy, But if he admits he's crazy, it proves he's sane and he has to fly the missions. And the only way he can prove he's crazy is to admit it. Right. (laughs) And so here. You're wasting your time, Dr. Nika was forced to tell him. Can't you ground someone who's crazy? Asked Ysiren. Oh, sure. I have to. There's a rule saying I have to ground anyone who's crazy. Then why don't you ground me? I'm crazy. Ask Clevenger. Clevenger? Where is Clevenger? You find Clevenger and I'll ask him. Then ask any of the others. They'll tell you how crazy I am. They're crazy. Then why don't you ground them? Why don't they ask me to ground them? because they're crazy that's why of course they're crazy dr nika replied i just told you they're crazy didn't i and you can't let crazy people decide whether they're crazy or not can you Usarian looked at him soberly and tried another approach is or crazy he sure is dr nika said can you ground him i sure can but first he has to ask me to that's part of the rule then why doesn't he ask you to because he's crazy, Dr. Nika said. He has to be crazy to keep flying combat solo missions after all the close calls he's had. Sure, I can ground or, but first he has to ask me to. That's all he has to do to be grounded? That's all. Let him ask me. And then you can ground him? Yosarian asked. No, then I can't ground him. You mean there's a catch? Sure, there's a catch, Dr. Nika replied. Catch 22. Anyone who wants to get out of combat duty isn't really crazy. <laughs> there was only one catch, and that was Catch 22 which specified that a concern for one's safety in the face of dangers that were real and immediate was the process of a rational mind. Orr was crazy and could be grounded. All he had to do was ask, and as soon as he did, he would no longer be crazy and would have to fly more missions. Orr would be crazy to fly more missions and sane if he didn't, but if he was sane, he'd have to fly them. If he flew them, he was crazy and didn't have to, but if he didn't want to, he was sane and he had to. Yossarian was moved very deeply by the absolute simplicity of this clause of Catch-22 and let out a respectful whistle. That's some catch, that Catch-22, he observed. It's the best there Doc Danica agreed. (laughs) So that was a bit long-winded, but the context was important because that, even the prose is, like, that's a perfect example of the prose of this book. Yeah. Yeah. Yes and no. Okay, go act. Okay. (laughs) What are you going to do? And I think that the degradation of the people in this book. If I'm going to put on like my psychologist hat on this, you see what happens to people when they're in a system where they can't think clearly about stuff because there's the the logic is too impossible. To so when you have to hold two thoughts that are that contradictory, like imagine it's obviously a joke in the book, but imagine trying to hold in your mind the idea the one idea, consciously, that you're both sane and crazy at the same time, and any action is just further confirmation of the other, and so any action to go one way is actually an action in the other way, but it really isn't. Like it's it's both self-perpetuating and self-defeating. So what do you do? do you know, yeah. Like that mentality is impossible to live with, and yet seems to be pretty <laughs> saturating in the military, or at least that's what Heller is saying in this book. Yeah, and I think in a in a sense, if you if you even think about the military and people killing
1: one another, there is an absurdity to being a soldier. Obviously, there's also a nobility, and I think the Greeks and the Romans understood that fairly inherently. Like, I don't think Keller has a monopoly on truth when it comes to the military. I guess is what I would say. Yes, no, um, and I think he's only his criticism is very one sided. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't think it's actually a very holistic vision of, of military no. service no, or anything not. like that but i do think as with any rational high-minded way of looking at things it's an incredibly valuable critique mm-hmm. in understanding how these things can
0: get messed up mm-hmm. one of the really interesting things about this book is that there aren't any characters who are in any of their armies <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, no. it's just the American Army that yeah. we're being uh, that we're dealing with, and then there's or some, the American Air Force. I guess. Yeah, the American case, Air Force, yeah. and then also a handful of people in Rome, and mostly prostitutes, actually. <laughs> yeah, they, they make a common, <laughs> which appearance is a in this big book. part of yeah. And so it's funny that Doc Danica is the one is the character who explains Catch Twenty Two because. And this is not surprising, but it's important to always remember is that it's a catch that also comes for him (laughs) because later in the book, I think I read read down chapter 31, it's recorded on a flight plan that he is on an airplane that crashes. And the reason for that is because he didn't like flying (laughs) and Yossarian put him on this flight plans because he's (laughs) trying to convince, he's
1: trying (laughs) trying to convince the doctor to to ground him and he's like, well, I'll
0: get you your flying hours without having to fly. That's a good example of Heller's, creative writing style yes, and, yes. and and good way of making a like that's a complicated joke it's a, that he made well there you know well, and
1: that's the thing about writers like this they may not be and like i think my my only critique of writing like this is that narrative i think is further reaching mm. than what he's doing here mm-hmm. like not than humor but he's he's so confusing that this book is not as accessible as say narnia but it is a different way it's like Art. It's like any form of art. Mm-hmm. There are there are things you can be good at. Yes. And, and that and make you a, a different, unique artist. Yeah. And I think in his case, weaving
0: together really good <laughs> jokes yes. is kind of his art. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good point. The payoff is a little bit smaller over the long term. But I liked it specifically in this case because Doc Danica is a character I didn't really like. Like, he just seems totally fine the nobility of this book are the characters who figure out how to either stand up against all of these the catch-22 or probably the best characters or because he figures out how to totally subvert it and just leave yeah you know yeah so he he's probably uh, i mean i'm not, it's not noble to desert the army but it's well we'll get to that because that's a huge part of yosarian's journey too so anyway this thing with Dr. Nika is that because he's on the flight plan and this plane crashes, everyone in the military bureaucracy, the official status of him is that he's dead. <laughs> well, he's not. He's on the ground beside everybody saying, I'm not dead. I'm right here. The joke goes so far in the book that they even send like a letter to his wife back in the States saying that he's been killed in action and she like moves away from him and like gets another husband. <laughs> and he's But he's not dead, but he's, Officially dead. And actually that's a biting insight in, it's obviously in this scenario taken to an extreme that maybe no one, not even the Soviets could pull off in terms of double think. But if I have a piece of paper that says you're dead and you're standing here beside me. Well, that's a decision to make. That's the horror, (laughs) the
1: banality of evil and the horror of bureaucracy, right? Because it's like, it is pretty horrible when suddenly like uh, the state, I remember, so at one point in my uh, life, all of my ID got stolen. Oh and, like that's brutal. A bunch of my and my computer, a whole bunch of stuff. My bags were at the back of a church doing a wedding. Oh and a homeless person came <laughs> in and oh, stolen. that's stuff, too bad. Which was, was horrible. But it is pretty gut-wrenchingly terrifying mm-hmm. to suddenly not be a person. Yes. Like to suddenly important. You sense. can't board a plane. Yeah. You can't do a lot of things that like you you just naturally do in the world that suddenly you don't have money you can't mm. access your money like and I think it's something that we've all kind of experienced that minor panic of where's my wallet sure but take that to an extreme like now Good the point. now
0: the state thinks you're dead <laughs> yes like you can't even go get your IDs yeah. because well I think the trespassing there of that joke is because when in your example everything that you've lost that make you not a person quote unquote are social constructs that we. Like, and I don't mean that in a derogatory yes, no, exactly. sense. There's They're social totally, contracts yeah. we need, like money and identification and credit card, whatever, right? Because once we've all agreed that this is the kind of game we're going to play, you've lost your tools Well, <laughs> on the funny, Yeah, you've lost your tools. And not only that, you can't... You need some of the tools to get the other tools yes so. but what catch 22 does well whatever any satire does well is take an idea to its logical extreme to show its absurdity so it's not even that dr nika lost his credit card it's that he's dead it'd be like holding a credit card and saying well actually uh, you've lost it <laughs> no it's right here just yeah. look right but it's like even more crazy because it's a person well He's yeah. like no i'm here i'm alive i guess like to give heller his due in this point if no one knew who Dr. Nika was, how would you know that this person saying he is Dr. Nika is Dr. Nika, right? Yeah. yeah. This is, I guess this is why we have to have other people around who know us. Well, like, yeah, someone's <laughs> got to vouch for you right at that yeah, point. exactly. Yeah. So it is a genius to point out, and we'll talk about this a bit more, I think, later, how these absurdities, one of the biggest reasons that they should be resisted, when they're not happening to you is cuz they will. Yeah, or <laughs> like, or they could. Yeah, and there's there's no reason why the things that are going for other people and even other people you might want to have gone after, they're going to come for you. Like that's yeah. Well, if there's a whole on phrase
1: in politics, be careful who you step on on the way up cuz you'll meet them again on the way down. Exactly.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. You know, and I mean, like there's probably Aesop's fables about this yes. kind of thing, you yeah. know. And but just one last note on catch 22 before we start on Yosarian is that right near the end. So one of, one of the thing, one of the narrative things I do love about this book is the tone shift about three quarters of the way through the book. So the first three quarters, it's absurd, but it's funny, right? Like everything is just silly, but there's a kind of a really noticeable shift in content. So it goes from being bureaucracy as creating silliness To bureaucracy is creating pain and tragedy and horribleness and death and destruction and human misery. Even more so than is necessary in war. Yes. Oh, yeah. The extra layers of tragedy put on by people being worse than they need to be. And so the last meditation on Catch-22 in the book is that Catch-22 exists only as long as everyone thinks it does. And one of the great insights from Heller in this book is that and this is a true belief I hold too, is that humans can better the world through their action. Yes. We can ameliorate, right? I love that word, ameliorism. Like human situation is made better through human action. And one of the kind of abstracted things you notice about something like a system, like the intense bureaucracy noted in Catch-22, is that it's perfect. It's You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like there's nothing that a person can do to improve the situation that they're in because the rules have made that impossible. And I think at bottom, Heller is reminding us that these things, these bureaucracies or any system of thought that are in webbing us in some way or trapping us are actually made... They're constructs by us, by people, so they can be unconstructed by people or changed or fixed or worked on. They're not eternal from on high we must suffer for the this w- is forever. not how it will always be
1: yeah well this goes back to our conversation about american gods mm-hmm. yeah. and belief and that is where power lies like the more i think about it and this is something that i that i think should be a is a theme is really what you do what you think about what you believe in is what has power over you mm-hmm. it's like that great scene in game of thrones where you know the king the merchant and the priests are all standing there, telling a knight to kill the other two. And it's like, well, which which one survives? The one the knight believes has power, yeah, right. And and that's the same for bureaucracy. Like there's
0: like that line. Did you ever watch the show House of Cards? Yes. Yeah. I think it's season two, maybe season three, but I think it's season two. And it's when Kevin Spacey, the, or the I think he's the vice president at the time, is in that argument with that super rich billionaire. I think his name's Tusk. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. And this was like a a moment behind the curtain, I think, for a TV show to admit this so bald-facedly because Kevin Spacey says to him, you might have all the money and all the politicians or whatever, like you have all, but I have all the guns. Yeah. And like, just put that simply. What does the state have the monopoly on? (laughs) Yeah. Violence. And, And what else? You want to talk about the prime human motivator. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you are dead, the other person wins. Yeah, it doesn't matter how much money you have yeah. when you died. Right? Yeah. So anyway, sorry. Continue your point. <laughs>
1: no, I, I guess my my point is, again, he has all the guns because the people with the guns believe he has the power. But if one day, yeah. w- if one day it suddenly slips, if the if the emperor suddenly has no clothes, yeah, and the people with the guns and realize the with that, the what guns are, they are like, to do? Wait a second, he doesn't have power. I have power. Yeah, or some other person t- who is telling me they have power has power. Then everything shifts. And all that it took for that to happen is a mindset. So we just had an event happen in Canada hmm. where the leader of our opposition resigned, right? And it was largely because suddenly everyone was like, wait, we don't have to follow this guy. Because mm-hmm. he said he wasn't going to resign. He was going to keep fighting. Yeah. And then a bunch of people were like, hold on. We don't want him to lead us anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and as soon as that happened, Everything crumbled for him. Yeah, and that is the fragility of power. Mm-hmm. Is that it is not actually about position, and I think that's one of the things I love about this book is it's showing how authority based purely on position, i.e., bureaucracy. Yeah, i.e., just some kind of structure. Mm-hmm. For structure's sake, yeah. only is absurd because it shouldn't hold power. These people
0: shouldn't just be going and bombing. Mm-hmm. But because everyone believes that, that, that that's what should be happening, <laughs> that's they what just doing. go and do it. Yeah. That's why I actually find, even though the end of this book is really dark, I still find it hopeful because I vitiate strongly to the idea of step one of fixing a problem is pointing out that it exists. Yes. And what Catch 22 does, and the way Heller uses Catch 22 in the novel, is it shows you the water you're swimming in, in the David Foster Wallace sense of the, you know, this is water. There's so many, part of the, well, like you were saying, this is exactly what you're saying. The reason why the Catch-22 works is because everyone else thinks it works. And most of the people it applies to don't really question it. Well, they assume they don't the underlying authority of the person who created the Catch-22. Exactly, exactly. When it was just a chimpanzee like them. Exactly. And now, I don't get the impression that Heller's saying, to hell with it, burn every system to the ground. Well, no, and
1: I and I wanted to make that point as well. Mm. He's not saying that. I, I really don't think he's saying no. that. What he's saying is the system has to exist for something beyond itself. Yes. And I think that's why I would argue that war isn't always bad. And while the absurdity he's pointing out, the Greeks and the Romans understood yeah. a different understanding of war. And not only that, in this particular war, there was something really important at stake. Yes. And you ha- and yes, on the individualistic level that Heller's looking at, it's absurd. Mm-hmm. But then let's think about the societal re- rationale uh, yeah. for why this is happening, right? The Yeah, the guy well, dropping I- the bombs, that's ridiculous. But the people burning
0: people from crem- sure, crematoriums, yeah. right? They needed to be stopped. Yeah. I mean, I don't know this because this would be like a historical thing. I feel like Heller probably was thinking, uh, okay, we know those stories. Like, and they're well told, and that's good. Yes, Here's the other part that I think also needs to be addressed so that we can be... Because the problem with this whole battalion, or what I don't know what they're called. I don't know the right term, but the the Air Force crew. Squadron, yes. There you go. The problem with this squadron and the Catch-22 essence of it all is that it's a closed system. It's all internal, and it functions really well internally but the problem with a closed system is that you're not innovating you're not changing you're not moving and eventually it will decay because of entropy
1: <laughs> and the, yeah <laughs> you know? and essentially it's that great battle and I, i've worked on, i work in political campaigning a lot there's a massive battle between the network managed campaign and the hierarchical managed campaign now the problem with the network managed campaign is you can't really direct it Sure. So, how do you go anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. It's like everyone's doing their own thing. Yeah. So you actually do need systems of authority, to, because at, at at the end of the day, there has to be someone making a decision mm-hmm. if you're going towards something. Yes. But but that's the problem is that a lot of people in this book didn't understand what they were headed towards. Well, yeah.
0: I mean, the the real reason everything sucks for everyone in this book is that the leaders suck. Yes. <laughs> like yeah. the people who are in charge of decision making are painted as vain self-indulgent selfward looking or like scared that they're going to get in trouble so they're shifting the buck onto someone else and no one there isn't a single like general or colonel in this book whose focus is on (laughs) saving the people of europe from the nazis no no, it's not the well-being of their men i know and i and i think that that is so important to point out is that just because you have a rank or a title doesn't guarantee <laughs> wisdom, integrity, or nobility, or well, courage. And and, and the, it seems to me like another thing that it's highlighting
1: is when you're in a system and you're a leader, if your only reason for holding on to it is position, mm-hmm. and if the reason that people obey you is because you're your position denotes authority, Yeah, you're not actually creating a team. Mm-hmm. You're not creating a group of people that yeah. are going to literally go to the wall for you or, exactly. or risk their lives. There are lots of stories about like battalions, squadrons, who loved their leader yeah. and were willing to die for them and respected them.
0: None of them are in this book. And none of them are in this book. <laughs> and
1: one of the questions I often ask people in politics is, like, would you follow that person into
0: battle? Mm-hmm. Would you risk your life for them? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, you know you've got a leader. Yeah. And so, for someone like Usarian, because he's smart enough to figure this stuff out, he's just so cynical. Yeah. like Do you know? And then and then the cynicism puts him into pure survival mode. Because, there's, yeah, there's nothing high-minded about
1: Usarian's world. No. It's literally, he's animalistic. He's but, like, I just want to survive.
0: But, well, at least the way that the scenario is painted for him, I can't really blame him. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, no, but it's, again,
1: like he he doesn't have any broader vision of the no, world. No, it's literally, I just want to. I I
0: love this. I well, I would say he develops it a bit at the end when he starts to see the atrocities happen. That's true. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. uh, when when the pillaging of that one town in Italy happens, and the, like the rape and pillaging, yeah. and that kind of aspect. I think that's really when his humanity is tapped into a little bit more. Yes. And like we said, this is a one-sided book. Yes. But the one-sidedness of it, I think
1: people are like, oh, it doesn't, things don't look at the whole picture, therefore they don't have credibility. No. Mm. You have to be able to look at things and scrutinize them closely in order to even produce a holistic vision. Well, and
0: so like, I honestly feel like the reason Heller wrote this book is not to say abolish the military to hell with it it's like here's how it goes wrong here's how it decays it happens so easily watch out for that because otherwise you are sending your men into battles they don't need to be in needlessly risking their lives for dumb missions now i don't know any historical accuracy of this particular point but fundamentally the guy who's in charge of the combat missions how many they have to fly is this guy named colonel cathcart and the reason he keeps raising them is so that it will look impressive to his superiors how many missions his men do. <laughs> and yeah. he doesn't go on the missions. So his reason for throwing them up in airplanes with anti-air anti-air flak and bullets coming at them is so that he has a better resume. Ex- yeah. Which, <laughs> oh, so, get, There's so and, many things to and, be said about and that. And that's annoying at a white-collar job. That cost Snowden his life in this book. Or that was the death of the one character named Snowden is... Kind of the turning point for Yosarian. I feel like in the narrative, yeah. At that point, Yosarian's like, "Why are we
1: doing this? Yeah. Like, we weren't supposed to even be flying right now." Mm-hmm. And and there is some nobility of some of the characters because some of them are like, "Well, if we stop flying, then someone else is going to, and then
0: basically they're going to die because of our cowardice." Yeah,
1: there are interesting. And that's so frustrating.
0: Questions. That is so frustrating that fact because it's again part of that catch twenty two. It's like damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, if you don't fly. You might survive, but you're putting somebody else in harm's way because this system is so messed up that it's going to be somebody. And then you also have on your conscience that you in some way contributed to being somebody else. Uh, <laughs> I think that's why psychologically warfare is so hard. Yeah. right. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I, there's
1: a great, I forget who wrote it and I need to look this up, but there's a book called Tribe. And it basically describes how people who were in the military and come back, one of the reasons they're depressed is they felt such a l- sense of belonging. Yeah. and like That's the opposite of this book, but like <laughs> a lot of people go into the military and they feel like they're on a team and they're working towards objectives and there's a brotherhood yeah. and and there's this
0: deep commitment to one another yeah. and then you go back into normal society and it's just like well, regular I, people. I, I totally get that impulse because I've had it even in some jobs I've had where... I've not wanted to take vacation because I know if I take vacation, the people who have to cover for me are other people at the job. Just have to do more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they just have to do more work because I'm not there. You know, it's yeah, like that's yeah. a sucky feeling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. Anyway, okay, let's talk a little bit more specifically about Yosarian. I mean, just as broad strokes, he's he's not. You're not. He's not a hero, <laughs> and he's not a a patron saint with everything on fire. Like he's not noble in the face of absurdity, but I still like that. He's someone who questions things like, yeah, I guess
1: that's his, his, his virtue. Yeah. Because there's a lot
0: of characters and especially um, in the, in early, we get it juxtaposed to this guy named Clevenger, who's like an idealist. He's a true believer. And it's kind of sadly ironic how he gets picked on by other soldiers. And then he gets killed too. Right. And, so the first line, I think, is page sixteen. Uh, Yosarian says, "They're shooting at me," and Clevenger says, "They're shooting at everyone." And Yosarian says, "What difference does that make?" Yeah. <laughs> like I, I know.
1: I lo- <laughs> the highlighting of that absurdity is awesome. That is what this book is all about. It's like. Wait, no. They are trying to kill you. Like it's <laughs> yeah. not just a war. Yeah. No, you as an individual. Like it, I think it gets into the to the mental state that you'd probably be at some points mm-hmm. if you were a soldier or, or an airman or something. Yeah. Where it's
0: like, oh yeah, my life is on the line here. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Clevenger is this guy who swallowed all the propaganda down to the very last ganda, <laughs> and Yossarian isn't. And so they make for a great dichotomy in their conversations because Yosarian's just like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And Clevenger's like, instead of answering his questions, he's getting angry because he's like, Well, you don't you're not a real patriot. You don't really love the United States if you're questioning the way we're doing things. And I just think that's total bullshit. You know, like maybe Yosarian, it's hard to tell. Someone like Yosarian could be questioning things to improve them, not just to <laughs> stay alive. This is why I think the idea that Heller is portraying is that actually being able to question your systems are what improve them, not dismantle them. The only thing that gets dismantled are the shitty people who are running things. Uh And they have an interest
1: in not being dismantled. (laughs) They have a huge interest in that. In (laughs) fact, and they will do whatever they will often cling to that power, no matter how hard you fight. But a lot of this has to do with tribalism. Like Mm. a lot of this has to do with the psychological, Reality of all. Well, this is my team. I love my team. Yeah. I can't say that the leadership of my team is bad. Then I'm attacking the team. Therefore, love the team. Yeah. Right. It's. I'm. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna pitch it to every one of you is tired of it. You guys all need to go and read the story of us <laughs> by Tim Urban, because it outlines this very clearly. There are different ways of thinking about the world, and the way that I think we're trying to promote on this podcast. Is very much a thoughtful reflection on the reality that you live in and a Mm -hmm. constant iterative A B testing. Does it work? Does it not work? Yeah. Experimentation, questioning, becoming less wrong.
0: Yeah. And and that's nothing in this book has that mentality to it. No. Other than individual men and like you said, who are getting abused? That is the the virtue of
1: a right? Is that he is doing that and he has done it, but now he's being crushed by
0: the system. Well, he's the he's the one. Well. There were a couple others, but he's the main guy who puts that the only people permitted to ask questions were those who never did part well, was like, well, Yossarian still asks questions even though he's not permitted. And this is a weird connection because I think he, uh, Yossarian is much less admirable, but that's kind of what Socrates did. Like Socrates kind of self- dis- Yeah, described himself as a gadfly. Like he was there to be an annoyance to the citizens of Athens with his questioning about their... Taken for granted biases about the world and the way that they did things. I know I mentioned this before, I just want to reiterate why this is so important for this because this is the most desperate version of it because you're in a war yes. you know, like this is, yes. this is life and death if you're going to do it anywhere, you're going to do it here and Heller's saying, it might not even happen here and the consequences are humans die needlessly if we're going to try and do anything in our social structures we're going to try and do things that prevent people from dying needlessly. Like, I feel like that's an axiom you just have to start from, but like, I, I it's hard to see what would be more of a rational starting point yeah. <laughs> for your systems <laughs> than preventing people from dying needlessly. Oh, no, I agree. And yeah. and so actually a lot of this book is competing incentives and and ugly incentives winning because the people who get to decide them, are, are operating are, under our ugly incentives. people you know and so i i think part of the antidote is figuring out how to put better people in charge of things yes like how do you put better people in charge of things merit yes i know but <laughs> okay well we've talked about that a lot and you are we're, we're definitely on this we, we are screamingly on the same page when it comes to that <laughs> yeah there's another character named Major 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 Major, Major, and he's the one I feel sorry for because people stop being his friend when he gets promoted. But this is a line Yosarian says to him, some people are getting killed and a lot more are making money and having fun. Let somebody else get killed. And then the major says, but suppose everyone on our side felt that way. And then Yosarian says, then it'd be a damn fool to feel any other way. (laughs) 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 Again, more of Heller's prose, but that's an example of maybe Yosarian cynicism coming out. It's a, thing in literature, I don't know if I've ever come across before, was like it's rational cynicism. If you don't trust your leaders and you don't trust that they're not just playing for with their life and in it for themselves, what else would you do? Like what else could you do? Well, I think I think about this a lot because
1: leadership, not just in the, you know, let's go to a conference and talk about what it means to be a leader, but literal leadership is a lot of what I do. Mm. And why do people give up so much of themselves their time their money their effort their energy for these leaders. <laughs> like what what is the answer to that? And I think the answer we actually do kind of see in this book is it's for a lot of people about power and money. Yeah. And in the bureaucracy they want to rise. They want to look good to their superiors. Why do they want to look good to their superiors? Because they want to become their superiors. Mm-hmm. It's all about the promotion.
0: And then there's no foresight on
1: how that game ends? No, none is <laughs> there. None. No, and that's the funny thing, though, is that is a game that is as old as time. It's the rise, the ranks. Yeah. To do what? Mm-hmm. It's the same issue I have with the word progressive, right? Progress towards what? Rise for what purpose? What are you trying to achieve? Yeah. What is your vision?
0: Well, most of the like the high-ranking people, it's something like self-aggrandizement, recognition, or, or vanity. Yeah. It's really There's vanity. A lot of vanity. Yeah. yeah. And. I don't know. I don't. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around people that vain that they're willing to risk other people's lives needlessly. But I've never lived through a war. No, but I think we see. Smaller, I mean, we've lived through we the Iraq War, but smaller examples of
1: this all or in the Afghanistan War. Mm-hmm. Well, we we've lived in the time period of a lot of wars. We just haven't been. To <laughs> yeah.
0: Long. Yeah. True. That's a very important <laughs> difference. <laughs>
1: I mean, there's just war theory. We could get into that if you want, but I think that's probably a topic for a different podcast. Yeah. One of the things that always impresses me about leadership is, again, what we went back to about gods. It's really just how many people can believe in you. Mm. And the thing about the military that's different than, let's say, politics or even business or any of these things is the military's method of dealing with how do we make a lot of people believe in us Is essentially twofold. One, if you don't obey us, you'll die. (laughs) Like you'll be court-martialed and you'll probably be executed. And especially in a war time. And two, position is authority. Yeah, you don't earn your authority in the military. Yeah, your position means that you just automatically have it. And part of that is because in battle time situations and things like that, you need a quick chain of command. You just need someone. You just need someone to make a decision because you're literally like again throwing people into life-and-death scenarios. Yeah, You can't have them all be Yosarians, right? You're
0: not going to achieve anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's just such a clusterfuck, isn't it? Like, it's so bad. It's like, it's such a compounding problem where every problem is its own problem and yet sets the table for the next problem. It's really hard to wind back all of the bad decisions in this book to figure out where you would even start from, like which parts to ditch and which parts to keep because everything looks terrible because it's all been ruined by all the decision making and so uh, <laughs> i can't even figure out where the problem is because there's so many problems do you yeah. know what i mean yeah exactly <laughs> it's kind of like how i feel about trump <laughs> i do want to talk a little bit more about incentives though because that was the another major theme of this book that i found is that because of the situation that their leaders are putting them in they're Rising to bad incentives to get out of the thing. So, one of the jokes of the book is how much Yosarian is trying to get into the hospital so he doesn't have to go fight. Yeah, there's a patient in the hospital who's kind of losing his mind. He's like, I see everything twice, I see everything twice. And like that, they're like, Oh, okay, well, you can, you're crazy, you need to be here. So, that's what Yossarian starts doing. Now, again, he they disappear the guy who's saying he sees everything twice. So Yosarian immediately changes his tune to, I see everything once, I see everything once. So it's funny. Yeah. But the note I made about that is that if you aren't clear-headed on things, people will develop bad incentives. So whatever you would say about the bureaucracy of this squadron, it's not clear-headed. <laughs> because of that, people like Yosarian are going to pretend to be sick when they're not to go into the hospital and like be really cynical about it. <laughs> For someone like me, I can't not see that clearly as an obvious problem. Do you think it's something that's not obvious? Like bad incentives? I feel like I just don't know how good okay, so I people guess generally the are word, the word obvi- at figuring out incentives yeah, the and word, what that the does The word to obvious,
1: I think, is is maybe um, what's causing the problem there.
0: It's obvious to you. Well, this is what I mean. Right? But I don't think people even think about incentives. I know, but don't you think that that's a great thing to make everyone aware of i think it should be one (laughs) of the number one things you're always thinking about (laughs) because if you can figure out what incentivizes
1: a person then you know their motives Mm -hmm. and then no longer are you in this fog of war with everyone around you it's like oh i know what this person wants out of me i know what this person wants out of the situation and therefore i can almost
0: always predict what they're gonna do well this is why i think the um like working with kids <laughs> you learn this real fast and i mean i did this when i was a kid too so i think it's human nature but the moment you put in a rule the kid finds the loophole yes <laughs> right so this is might be counterintuitive but i actually think one of the best ways to do rules is to make them not exactly exact do you okay, know what i mean me, yeah i like, like this, but i want to hear an example so of it. you kind of keep it vague enough you have to be sitting on a chair to eat your snack well some kid's gonna put that chair wherever they want in the middle of the room they're like i'm on a chair i'm on a chair right so a better way to deal with that is that you might have a rule where it's like before you get your snack talk to your leader about what the plan is for snack that day right now they're probably going to hear something similar but it's like it gives me as the, in this case the rule giver more flexibility to well, in some deal ways, with th- those what loopholes. you just
1: described
0: is you you
1: download authority to someone closer to them, yeah, so that they know they're being watched more.
0: <laughs> <and> <laughs> well, it's not to scare them or anything. No, no, it's just it's a distribution of mental labor. Well, one of the great things I think about becoming an adult and like maturing is understanding the spirit of things instead of the letter of things. Yes. You know, and yeah. like okay, here's a potential loophole that I'm not going to exploit because I know that that's not what you meant. Yeah. Now, sure, there's a theory of mind going on here that kids don't have quite the same of, but they learn and they still are, yeah. <laughs> you know, a little brats about it sometimes. So, uh, okay, what am I trying to say about this with, in regards to Catch-22 is that there's something so brittle and exacting and uncompromisingly exacting in the way that Catch-22 works in the lives as rules for the people in the book that... They're going to have no choice but to find the loopholes. And then the overall functioning of the squadron is just going to go way down because the rules are not incentivizing what you might say you want to have in a squadron, which is liberating the people in a just war. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And so because the leadership is not clear-headed in their own priorities and values of this war, They have to put down these really clamping rules on their men, which all that that's going to do is make people find loopholes because they don't want to die. And so then you have this like Ouroboros of shitty incentives feeding into loopholes, feeding into people figuring out how to get around these dumb rules, but not for any greater purpose, right? Like just their own survival. Yeah, this is
1: a failure of of leadership. It's a failure of getting people on board with a mission that you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they're having that failure is because all they do is care about themselves, which then on a deeper level is is a failure of character. Yeah. And if these leaders... Had a lot of character. Cared about their men. Their men went up with their men sometimes and said, "Okay, I'm going sure. to I'm going to put myself on the line." Yeah. Like this is one of the things about Alexander the Great. So many of the great leaders of like wartime leaders, their men loved them because they would be at the front line with them, being yeah, like, yeah, yeah. "Oh yeah, if you're if you're going to risk your life, well, I'll Maximus risk it with you." Maximus and Gladiator, yeah, right?
0: exactly. Yeah. So then, like, what? Is it, is it just better leaders or is it like... This is a completely separate question from Catch-22 because I think it's really important. How do you think you make people in society more aware of how incentives work in their lives? Like, What's oh, the educational piece yeah. to that, do you think? Because I think that that's one of the great... Well, a lot of people things. aren't even aware there is such a thing as an incentive.
1: <laughs> I know that sounds terrible, but they interact with all of reality almost at an animalistic survival based instinct way mm. or hedonistic in a sense where it's just like whatever makes me feel the best right mm, they, they don't understand right. that their incentives are are low and animalistic and not noble because they've never even thought about what a noble incentive would look like so i think you have to build an idea of what character looks like in virtue like I actually yeah. like if you read um, that's a good point if you read David Brooks, Road The Road to Character, to character yeah, it's a great book. why do you develop character? Is it because there's something inherently better about character? Yes. But what is the inherently better thing? The inherently better thing is that if you have character, the things that incentivize you are different. Yeah. How do you train, huh, this is going to sound funny, but how do you train people to care about incentives? Give them better
0: incentives. They're always <laughs> yeah, going to be worth sure. thinking about incentives. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and that's actually a perfect answer for this book. <laughs> <laughs> what well, would you say then? Um, uh, make virtue ethics great again? <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true because I, I've definitely started trying to unearth the value of a character-driven life as being what people can focus on as like a North Star. You know, I try to find... Role models that I can look at and say, hey, there's a lot of character there. And it's it's really... There's so many different ways it can happen. Like, this might seem like a trite example, but to me, it's very meaningful. Is that one of my... One of the people I really look up to is Dave Grohl, the guitar player and singer of Foo Fighters. Because he's arguably the world's most famous rock star. And you listen to his interviews. The most famous rock star. Like, arguably, he's the world's most famous living rock star. Or Or like, like Bono. Okay, let me rephrase it again then <laughs> arguably one of the world's most famous contemporary alt okay. rock okay all right okay <laughs> now
1: that we've defined the term I'm well he's agree he's
0: in the ballpark of the most famous yeah he's like in the top yeah. 100 yeah yeah and so he's insta-recognized anywhere he goes if anyone was a candidate for the stereotype of the egocentric Rock star, this guy, right? Right. Like he's got millions of adoring fans, millions and tens of millions. He'll sell out in Brazil. He'll sell out. Their band sells out in every yeah, country they huge, go to, yeah. right? But he's got a persona, or a, he's he's known as the nicest guy in rock and roll. And I think part of it is because he's a good dad. Probably right. the biggest part is because he's a good dad. And I remember an interview one time, it was like someone was like Dave Grohl, you, here's you're this famous, but you're this nice. Why? And he's like, well, because my kids don't give a fuck. <laughs> no, he's like, yeah. it doesn't matter how many millions of records I sell. My five-year-old's gonna be like, Dad, where's my goddamn smoothie? <laughs> you yeah, know, or and, or I want to play with you. Yeah, and and he's he's well, okay, I don't know this. He seems like an unbelievably involved father. Like he included his daughters in one of his music videos, the most one of the most recent ones. So anyway, all of that is that Dave Grohl is, as far as I can tell, an incredible parent. Right. Well that's a character thing yes. I think to yes. be an incredible father to his children which bleeds into him being humble when he has more right to not be humble than maybe anyone like around you know and so that kind of role modeling stems from the character that you're talking about and this is a perfect epiphany for this book because that's what's missing yeah the right? leaders don't the, have character the character is as soon as you pointed out you're like oh my gosh it's the outline chalk outline on the ground that you <laughs> yeah this is why the dead body's <laughs> yeah, there yeah, yeah where it was yeah i love that that's cuz it's i love things that are so obvious when you say them yeah like that's the antidote i think that that is the um we talked about meliorism. that's the melioristic antidote is being able to consciously articulate the character flaws of the people who are giving the incentives. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So good job, David. Yeah, thank thank you. you so much. That was, that was perfect. The, you would put this on the plus side of the ledger for Usarian's character, is that he can't actually tell Dobbs to kill Cathcart. Right? right. Dobbs is saying, just tell me, just tell me, and I'll go... He, Dobbs is another guy who's fed up, and He's he's willing to go assassinate this Colonel Cathcart character who they... He's the scapegoat. He He does decide the missions, but he's also... Upon pawn <laughs> and Dobbs saying you just tell me I'll go kill him and he goes sorry and can't you know even well I guess maybe he knows it won't actually solve his problem <laughs> yeah I think so, that's the bigger thing is but well
1: I don't know I, I, I if he really thought it would save his life
0: do you think he would do it no I don't yeah I, I guess that is a plus there's side. enough hesitation in him for things like that and even like In portrayals, Yosarian does seem to care about his friends. Yes. You know, so... Even though he sounds like a really
1: grumpy, angry friend. (laughs) Yeah. He's the friend that's sitting there ranting about things while he's drunk, but still a good
0: guy. Mm -hmm. And there's a hilarious part where he is listening to a psychiatrist... read out all the things that are bothering the psychiatrist like it happens it's it's just uh, he he turns it on him but there's all these things that depress Yosarian that I wanted to read out too because I think part of the tragedy of this book again is how this form of system uh that's operating in the squadron is sucking the life out of Yosarian so it's not just like putting him in physical danger but it's sapping him of of a vitality of living, Yeah, you know? And, and so it's like the double-edged sword of you, both your outer and your inner life are getting corroded Yeah, or destroyed by this catch-22. And so I wanted to read these things that... So this is the psychiatrist talking to you, Sarian. You have a morbid aversion to dying. You probably resent the fact that you're at war and might get your head blown off at any second. I more than resent it, sir. I'm absolutely incensed. <laughs> You have deep-seated survival anxieties, and you don't like bigots, bullies, snobs, or hypocrites. Subconsciously, there are many people you hate consciously sir consciously you're sorry and corrected an effort to help i hate them consciously <laughs> yes <laughs> you're antagonistic to the idea of being robbed exploited degraded humiliated or deceived misery depresses you ignorance depresses you persecution depresses you violence depresses you slums depress you greed depresses you crime depresses you corruption depresses you you know it wouldn't surprise me if you're a manic depressive yes sir perhaps i am don't try to deny it i'm not denying it sir <laughs> said and pleased with the miraculous rapport that finally existed between them. I agree with all that you've said. <laughs> yeah,
1: like, but
0: but it's so absurd because it's like, of course those things depress us yeah. because they're awful. So, I mean, yeah, the psychiatrist thinks he's had a clinical breakthrough. <laughs> no, <laughs> Clearly no, not. No, no, no. But I do like how that passage points out. I, and Maybe I just like it because the things that depress Yossarian, and he admits to, also depress me. Like, it is, I get... I get really kind of, I guess, depressed is the closest word. I mean, that, that has other connotations I don't really intend. It, it saddens me when humans can't figure out how to solve their problems at the best of their abilities. Like, I actually find that really sad. Or, like, I've tossed this term around with you, highest common denominator. Like, the best versions of our brains to solve a problem, to to, to interact. And, obviously... Violence is not that version, <laughs> like, unless it's the final last resort. I do get depressed with the depravity that comes because we just can't seem to figure out how to solve a problem. You know, there's just too much disagreement and then resentment and hypocrisy and all of those things that the psychiatrist was also talking about. And I think why I get so burdened by the theme of this book, not in the book but like when you see it in the real world is that i think that this kind of bureaucratic system doesn't incentivize the things about us that would make us able to ameliorate things better you know what i mean
1: yes but i think also it doesn't incentivize it because it doesn't have a north star Hmm. when your incentives are based and animalistic and you don't have a rubric with which to make decisions with more nobility you're going to make the hedonistic, like even the power struggle decision. And and going back to what you said, like a lot of that is what you focus on. Yeah. Because like to be the pot, the pessimist or the optimist is not situation dependent. Yeah. It's yeah. That's true. literally what you choose to focus on. Mm. So instead of focus, Yesarian focuses on all this evil in the world. And actually this goes to the point of one of the issues I think we're facing in modern culture is there's so much focus on the bad. When,
0: empirically, things are getting a lot better. than they've been better than they ever have and, been. And they're better than they've and, ever had And happened. for many parts of the world where they've never been this good. Exactly. Or even, clo- even close to this good. But all of that is taking advantage of our psychological biases. Yes. <laughs> Towards noticing the negative things more than the positive yeah. things. Yeah, and, and I guess uh, my thing
1: to you, Asarian, is, yeah, all those things you said are true, mm-hmm. but they're not everything.
0: No, uh, and that's why I think why I'm really interested in this idea of longer harder more work like it's just obviously more work cognitive work to focus on the positives and accentuate them and figure out how to put that out into other people's lives yes. <laughs> you know like that's yeah. just way harder to me like for me personally that's what i call the liberal's job again maybe i need a better word than liberal because i don't mean it in a partisan way you know i mean yeah, it, I, think, I mean it in a
1: but i think you we just i mean even classical liberal is a meme at this point <laughs> yeah so. Maybe we do need a better term. I don't know what it would be. It's, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I know you do.
0: Like the the way of figuring, like, and like the, the verb. The verb is amelioration. Figuring out how to slowly detract of the things that make us needlessly suffer. Yeah, we can. We're gonna suffer. We're gonna live with the things that we can't help but suffer from. But we can slowly bring down the things that help us needlessly suffer and if this book is anything it's a sh- it's a show of all of the things that make these men needlessly suffer i'm sure i've said that already in the last <laughs> bit of the podcast but i just I, and i know we're actually kind of from a few different angles arriving at the same destination here but i think that that's fine in this particular book because the understanding of that is so crucial
1: now one of the rules we have so in politics crucial. is you have to
0: say something six or eight times before people <laughs> remember it so yeah we're we're saying it six the, or eight the times the destination of figuring out that you need leaders with character and you need character and character can actually be developed and you can choose to develop your character, I think is such an important message because of the quagmire of everyone in this book is the result of no good decisions being made (laughs) about anything. So anyway, here's a great line too about Yosarian. He was jeopardizing his traditional rights of freedom and independence by daring to exercise them. And I loved that part because... Last little thing I have about here about Usarian is that it's page four nineteen. And this is this is the logical and terrible end game of this kind of bureaucracy, is that he's the one who gets arrested for not having a pass while he's out in the town. But even though he's in the same room as Arfi, who just raped and murdered a girl. Yeah. So this other guy named Arfi, who we never really thought was a monster, which again that's an interesting psychological take about what a war might do to a person, like the evils that it can unlock in the battlefield. I mean, just look at Vietnam and uh, what was that? Oh, look Ma- at most mo- wars, what yeah. they do to people. Yeah. And so, but Arfi has just raped and murdered this one prostitute or maid. No, she was a maid. And the military police come, and Yosarian is like happy because he's like, oh, yeah, arrest this guy. He just raped and murdered this girl. And they arrest Yosarian because he doesn't have a pass. And that's, <laughs> I guess, in one sense, that's a bigger transgression as far as the military is concerned. But even. More broadly, like maybe that's just like that's what they've chosen to focus on as so a they moral about, infraction. Right? Well, they're the
1: military and imp- police.
0: Yeah, right? they don't, they don't <laughs> care about
1: some random civilian.
0: Yeah, and so they,
1: they're there to enforce their rules.
0: So, but like, <laughs> I mean, that's so fucked up that we would have any system ever that has, well, no, like that's the, able it's like, to. It's like the crucible, right? <laughs> it's
1: it's these these yeah, I guess th- so. these like thoughtless dogs that just act
0: obediently to whatever system they are uh they're a part of Mm -hmm. i mean there's probably a word for this in philosophy but there's there's um there's a gap there between what the mandate is and what human life is like do you know what i mean oh like yeah like the the gap between what the military police are legitimately able to do and even seem oriented towards caring about and yet what the kind of existential battle of figuring out how we can live best with each other necessitates on any thinking person on any day because forget the title they're given a human showing up in that moment between someone who's there without a pass and someone who's just raped and murdered someone. is a no brainer or it should be a no brainer, right? But the system is so powerful. It can prevent even that like, again, this is what I really want to hammer home about why it's so important for a war story is that this bureaucracy and craziness of catch 22 has codified a system that puts its moral energy into rectifying someone not having a pass more than someone who murders and rapes. Yeah. Like yeah. that is well, it's tragedy in a novel, in a work of fiction. That is I don't even know the the depraved word I could use for if it happens in real life. But think about it, it does happen in real life. I know, it has but so
1: many times, right? Well, but that's when, when, Not okay. No, nobody's. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, is, like, like, yeah.
0: the the. How do we stop that? Like, right. what's and it's uh, we you character. Have, you again. have to
1: stop raw submission to systems without any questioning of them. And instead of que- instead of saying that authority is there for authority's sake, mm-hmm. authority is earned, and it's earned by character. Yeah. If
0: if you can do that, if you can pull that off, none of this happens. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I guess there are. It's just coming to mind now. There are stories where that trend is bucked a bit and i don't know if this is an exact analogy but uh, there's a story i think it was in the 80s about a russian submarine commander who was ordered to fire their nukes yeah because the the guy who saved the world yeah Yeah. they thought the the thought was the americans had launched a nuke and he didn't i think it's because like the story is that he thought it was a a blip yeah. or like a mistake on the radar kind of thing and he wasn't going to risk it so he ignored orders to fire a nuke to save the world as you say and like i guess that's a counter example but like that takes a lot of balls <laughs> yeah it <laughs> and takes well, a lot there's a guy that, that did that. that
1: in russia i don't know if it's the same one you're thinking of and he just lived the rest of his life and no no aggrandizement yep. like got fired for mm-hmm. doing it lived in poverty yep. he's probably saved a million lives and and again the incentives have to be more noble. Yeah. Then I will get something for this. <laughs> yeah. It has because to be,
0: this is the right thing to do. I guess you have to be okay with obscurity. Yeah. Right <laughs> because now. yeah, actually, I'm glad you m- made that point because it reminds me of that's what I feel about Thomas Paine yes. as a founder of the United States. Like, this is the guy that basically had the idea <laughs> of the United States. He wrote Common Sense, which inspired so many of the soldiers during the Revolutionary War he was good friends with jefferson he wanted to abolish slavery at the at, the founding, at, at yeah. the founding it was a it was a terrible sadness to him that that the founding fathers wouldn't listen so like here's this guy who's so involved with everything about the united states inception that was good and he eventually like just died poor yeah <laughs> in like he was in jail in france for a long time because he didn't like the way that they were going off the rails with their revolution and there's not even really like a memorial to him in anywhere, you know. It's no, just people, like most people
1: don't have any idea who he is. Yeah, he's not named among the
0: arguably funds. the most important person in the founding of the United States, and has no real like Jefferson has Monticello, <laughs> right? Yeah.
1: yeah, you have to be okay with obscurity. Yeah, we're and agreeing. that's just a
0: different incentive, isn't it?
1: Look at look at Sir Thomas More, right? No, the right. man for all seasons. Mm, Again, yeah. a man whose principles
0: were more important to him than his own life. Yeah, these are these seem to me like people that are worth emulating in our culture more than reality T V stars. <laughs> I would think I so. don't know. I That's just an observation so. yeah, I'd yeah. make. In in coming and going. Old, old <laughs> observation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll try not to get too sanctimonious yeah. <laughs> or <laughs> uh, hey everybody. David and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening. Because, as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. Anyway, three other characters I wanted to talk about together, just very quickly. Major Major, the Chaplain, and McWatt. The Major, people stop being his friend when he is promoted. And I was just like, that's so sad. You know, like, that's a common thing i guess in life but it's like once your station has changed you can't be friends and i've noticed this too at work in general people are like a peer and then they maybe get a promotion and they're just completely different and yeah. you're completely di- like or it can be both ways right like it doesn't have to be the top person or the bottom person if you will <laughs> i think i think honestly that's just um
1: i don't know maybe i'll say lack of maturity but, but don't you like, think it was sad in the book How it's his sure men s- it's sad in the treated book treated him in and that like way? And I think that happens even more in the military because of how structured the hierarchy is and how, like, significant authority is. These men are unhappy because they should be going home and they're not being sent home. And then this guy gets promoted and now, now he's part of the system that is oppressing them. Yeah, and right? he
0: was one of them and now he's not. And he didn't even want the promotion. They just gave it to him because he was, like, the closest person to them. And he also had the un- he had the unfortunate reality of being named major 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 yeah. and then getting the rank of major right <laughs> so major, major, like major, the joke major. was he was originally named caleb major but his dad changed it on the birth certificate to major 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 just to piss off the mom and then he gets the rank of major so his name is major 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 yeah. but here is a here is um a line that heller writes about major that it arrested me when i read it because of how Vital it felt, and I've seen in my own life, because Major is trying to explain to Yosarian why he has to do all these things, and it's obviously bullshit. It is platitudes, and Yosarian isn't having a bit of it. And I think we all kind of know that feeling of when someone's using cliches or buzzwords, not their own voice, to explain something to you that you don't want, and they can't just tell you the truth. It's like, I have the power. You have to listen or whoever has the power said this and you have to listen. I don't know. We have a weird discomfort with that kind of thing in our society. Don't we? Yeah. We'll have power. And we'll have hierarchies. But we don't like to talk about them. No, no, we don't <laughs> because then it's
1: class. Then it's like, Oh, the emperor has no clothes. Yeah.
0: But this was the line that was ma- was going on in uh, major's internal dialogue. What could you do with a man who looked you squarely in the eye and said he would rather die than be killed in combat? a man who is at least as mature and intelligent as you were and who you had to pretend was not, what could you say to him? And I just made the note of you're missing the joy of an equal there. Yeah. Right. You're missing the joy of a peer and an intelligent. And I, and I I know I've said this before, like to me, one of the best higher order pleasures I've ever had in my life is to be in essentially communion with thoughtful, educated peers, people of my own standing who are, engaged in thoughtfulness and playfulness and humor but also deep thought and all of that and major's noticing that in the scene where he's like what do you say to someone who you actually respect but have to pretend like you can just lie to them (laughs) Mm. and that's more of the soul corrosion that's going on in this whole scenario yeah yeah and and like i'll admit i can't do that i've i've had some Supervisory roles in my life and there have been some people i've supervised who i can't pretend like i don't see the greatness in them yeah and i'm going to pretend like it's not there because i'm the supervisor do you know what i mean like i just can't not actually say what i think again
1: just bad leadership because if you see uh, like if i see that in someone in my life and i think many people will attest to this I then see my job as promoting them as much as I can. Right. And like pushing them forward and building them up. Again, it's because I have a vision of what I want the world to look like. And like the kind of person I want to be has to say, if if there's someone better than me for the job,
0: they should have the job. Yes. Right? If there's someone... That that, is is upper echelon maturity though. (laughs) Right. I suppose, (laughs) I guess. But I don't know. I I don't... Maybe, yeah. I, I, I think it is now. I don't think it has to be. Yeah. Right? Like, imagine <laughs> put on my Jen, John Lennon hat here. Imagine a world where it wasn't a fearful thing to be working towards the obsolescence or obsoleteness of your own job. Yeah. Right? Being, being yeah. putting yourself out of a job, at least in the specific way the job because train now. Because you trained someone to do it better than yeah. you ever you've could. You've trained it or you've done it so well that you fixed the problem that the job was there in the first place to yeah. rectify so you don't actually need the problem anymore. This is what I mean about incentives is that there's a really ugly, ugly underside to incentives is that if you're someone who's good at fixing problems, you need, you need problems, problems because then you're needed. Yeah. And then you're going to go find problems. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. and... If you don't think that's a prime motivator of human nature, I just think you're naive. Yeah. Like, that's what ha- that's what people do. Yeah. People, this isn't everyone, obviously, but in a non-trivial way, cops need criminals. Yes. So cops need crime. <laughs> and perhaps the utopia I'm dreaming of, which is, I'm tongue in cheek because I I don't think it's actually a utopian thing, is that once you get to a point in a task maybe where you are realizing that you're doing so much good that you actually probably have gotten close to or have solved the problem that your task needed you to do in the first place you don't make more of the problem so you can do the task more you figure out what the new problem is and go on to that one and that's and the a difference new job
1: between being a bureaucrat and an innovative thinker yes right
0: a mm-hmm. bureaucrat
1: Needs there to constantly be that problem. They need the, 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 the they need to constantly fulfill their role in the organization. Yes, and their role is perpe- self perpetuating. And whereas the innovator is like, well, how do I fix this problem?
0: So since you've seen more of that than me, do you, on balance, more blame the bureaucrat or the bureaucracy? for I blame that? the system. I, okay.
1: I, I honestly do think that. But a certain kind of person is attracted to the system. Sure. The person who doesn't want <laughs> risk, yeah, R- risk mitigation is is a, is a high order human like survival instinct. Mm, that's a good point. Right? Comfort, yeah. yes, and 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 oh, it's so like people when, when someone doesn't have a job, it's psychologically damaging. In fact, if you have to worry about how much money you're going to make that month, mm, yeah, there is a lot of evidence that it can drop your IQ substantially. To right and and that, that's a real fear. And most people cannot handle stress, like they they cannot handle existential survival level stress.
0: Well, stress is because stress is an indicator to watch out for something to stay alive. Exactly, <laughs> and, and so why
1: not? And so there's a certain kind of personality that aggressively seeks out security. yeah.
0: But you, you would still say that that's a minority of people who find themselves in bureaucracies? No, no, no. I think that's a majority of people who find themselves oh, in Oh, yeah. Well, that's, yes. it would be a non-random selection of people who exactly. go and find those oh, jobs. Oh, way more. Yeah. But you think it's a, probably a minority of the human population? Yes. Okay. Uh, no. No. I guess there'd be degrees of it, though. I just think that there's a... My, that you can't have everyone
1: working for the government. Like, people sure, really right. want a government job. Well... Can't be fired.
0: You y- know... yeah. I'm trying to thread the needle here of picking out the problem without bashing people. And and not that you are, because yeah. you're making a good point about human psychology. I don't blame them for that. Right. I right. okay. want we'll to make it clear I don't yeah. blame people for
1: seeking security. Mm-hmm. Uh just because that's not how I live my life doesn't mean it, I think that how I live
0: my life is the only way. So do you think there could be a potentially good middle ground? of security think, and risk what, it's like in enterprise.
1: Said. I think it's fine to have the security as long as the incentives are correct. Say, yeah, you get the security, but these are the, these are the outcomes that we need to see you achieve. Mhm. Right? The yeah. outcome is like for example, let's take Alberta for example. If you're if you got this full-time safe job in AHS, Alberta Health Services, right? We want wait times down. <laughs> we want more yeah. surgeries happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We want you to figure out how, like, your job is literally to provide healthcare yeah. to Albertans. So
0: that's your rubric mm-hmm. by which you are measured. So, and it, I'm just as a total ignorance, like, do our government jobs just so protected because it's a union? That's a big part of it, yeah. That's, okay. That's a, and it's the number one place that unions still survive because
1: of this. Profit doesn't matter, government. You, there's no survival instinct. So they can keep
0: negotiating, and here's the other thing: there's a lot of people working for a so union. What about a hybrid model? I guess this is what you're proposing: a hybrid model where there's you introduce more risk into government jobs. That's exactly what I think should happen. Okay, I mean, I'll talk to. I want to. I'm. That's super interesting. I'll we'll talk about it more off podcast because I'd like to learn more because I have so many thoughts about like. So what if they fail? Does the country fail if the government workers fail like what would be well, no because but, i mean yeah you know like ahead, i yeah. want I, i'm supremely curious because then because my thought is in a business if the workers fail the company just fails and then the yes. company's out of business yeah that's why what happens is- if the government goes out of business well that, yeah because but
1: then again <laughs> again we don't have that same fear because there's not a profit problem yeah right
0: you right. don't you can't go out of business cuz you have the monopoly on power <laughs> yeah and it's true it's also it's like trying to have an economic just freezing the variable of you freeze of, the variable of, of profit, profit. Yeah. <laughs> then like, there's no necessity for yeah, profit because yeah. because
1: how are you getting your profit with guns yeah you're saying oh well if you don't pay your taxes guess what happens to you
0: <laughs> yeah you're going to jail <laughs> i i am um, both agreeing with you and feel a little bit sad at how much I'm agreeing with you. (laughs) My uh, liberal sentiments are dying a sad, lonely death. (laughs) I guess there's some truth into that. Like, if you're not a liberal in your 20s, you don't have a heart. And if you're not a conservative in your 30s, you don't, you don't have, have a head. brain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. The chaplain, he doesn't stand up for himself versus Whitcomb, which is why you were saying earlier that you think he's weak. And I think he is weak. But I wondered, too, if part of the chaplain's presence in this m- book is to demonstrate the weakening effect of the church on a bureaucratic model like the army hmm and we talked about it in there will be blood how capitalism supplanted the power of the church could not also the military have done that oh for sure i mean
1: the military within the context of the of the military but again it goes back to what it, that that analogy from game of thrones where does the power lie
0: well in the military the power of life and death lies entirely with the military bureaucratic structure. Uh-huh. in this book I don't know if it'd be a very good analogy just cuz there isn't a lot of symbolism. Well, have you seen <laughs> this Hacksaw book? Ridge, the movie Hacksaw no, Ridge? No, I have not Okay, you got to watch that. Okay. Cuz that is
1: an example of the triumph of religion over oh, military. Oh yeah, cuz he's a he's a conscientious he's a pacifist, right? A pacifist, but right. he still goes and he and he becomes a hero and you got to watch yeah, it. A yeah, yeah, cuz he saves all these. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Okay, but, cool.
0: Yeah. So then, for the chaplain, do you think he just needs to be stronger? Yeah, I just think he's he's weak. Yeah. And people take advantage of him, right? Like that Whitcomb guy. But I liked his line to Sergeant Towser when he was told to give nonsense info. In he's regards soft-headed to major- soft-hearted. Yeah. This is a piercing question. Like, this is the kind of question that I think only the chaplain and Yosarian and maybe a couple other characters would ask in this book is, isn't there tragedy enough? And... I think that's a great example of the simplicity of a great question. Yeah. Like how deep a great, simple question can cut to get through all the noise and confusion, you know? Like, isn't there tragedy enough without having us to make more? Yeah. Well, the funniest part about the chaplain is when he kind of loses his head for a minute and he turns, he doubles down on all of the vices as virtues to pretend like they're what he really believes. So he can have, I guess some kind of standing, right. <laughs> so I wanted right. to read them out here. What in the world are Wisconsin shingles? asked Yasarian. That's just what the doctors wanted to know, blurted out the chaplain proudly and burst into laughter. No one has ever seen him so waggish or so happy. There's no such thing as Wisconsin shingles. Don't you understand? I lied. I made a deal with the doctors. I promised that I would let them know when my Wisconsin shingles went away if they would promise not to do anything to cure them. I never told a lie before. Isn't it wonderful? (laughs) The chaplain had sinned, and it was good. (laughs) Common sense told him that telling lies and defecting from duty were sins. On the other hand, everyone knew that sin was evil and that no good could come from evil. But he did feel good. He felt positively marvelous. Consequently, it followed logically that telling lies and defecting from duty could not be sins. (laughs) The chaplain had mastered, in a moment of divine intuition, the handy technique of protective rationalization, and he was exhilarated by his discovery. (laughs) It was miraculous. It was almost no trick at all. He saw to turn vice into virtue and slander into truth, impotence into abstinence, arrogance into humility, plunder into philanthropy, thievery into honor, blasphemy into wisdom, brutality into patriotism, and sadism into justice. Anybody could do it. It required no brains at all. It merely required no character. There it is. So that is the payoff from the book of what we've been talking about. Is that we'd be super remiss to not point out that the temptation to back into the system and just cynically use it for your own for your own short term benefit. That temptation is so powerful and always there. Yes. Do you know? Like the 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 chaplain can't not do it. He he lies and it's just like the rush because he's off the hook in some way or form, you know. And this goes back to hedonism. We have to point that out as a prime motivator as well, I think, you Mm -hmm. know, as as the way our brains work. But yeah, so hedonism? Well, it's the
1: momentary pleasure versus the long term character success, right? He feels good because he's escaped something he doesn't want to do. It's like a child who lies about whether they stole a cookie or not. Mm -hmm. Well, they're probably going to get found out. But in that moment, they're not going to be disciplined now. Right. Yes. Right? And it's avoiding, it's what children do to avoid the the immediate consequences (laughs) of their actions. As opposed to learning that if you take responsibility
0: for your failings, Mm -hmm. then people respect you more. There's a reason why there's these common expressions, right? Like short-term gain, long-term pain. Yeah. Or vice versa, you know? And I like that a lot. And I like that that's being nodded to here. And so then I just also wanted to have one thought on McWatt, the character who's probably Yosarian's, one of his closest friends in the book. But there's a really, really sad scene where, because McWatt is a pilot and he's showboating and he's flying his plane too close to the water and he kills one of the men, Kid Samson. The propeller kills him. And this is actually the airplane that everyone thinks Doc Danica is on, which is, it's a little bit funny, but it's really sad. So McWatt... There's two other people in there. He gets them to jump out with their parachutes. And then he flies his own airplane into a mountain. So he commits suicide because he killed this other guy on accident and he couldn't live with that consequence. And that really made me... Like, it's a really weird question, but it's like, do you think that was the right thing to do for McWatt? Like, what? what's kind of what like it's understandable i understand his motivation It's very clear and it's not like i'm like why would he do that like he no oh, yeah he the, had enough integrity the reason for doing it yeah because of his foolishness someone lost their life and to pay that debt he'd have to lose his own
1: but i think that's a misalignment of values because how does his no longer being in the world pay for the other person not being in the world right and that's like honor culture which yeah which is a very um real and ancient and thoughtful way of dealing with the human condition is that honor is what matters. Mm-hmm. So he, he he essentially committed, you know, he his honor had been uh, tarnished, so there was only one way to redeem his honor right. in his own mind. I just don't think, I guess personally, I don't think, I mean, it really depends. Like, is he going to continue to be foolish and kill <laughs> other people? Then, yeah, killing himself would probably be, uh, Yeah, I mean, right? I guess in a purely, like... Utilitarian but if maybe calculus. he can learn from that error, I guess it goes back to how do you deal with the things that, that cause you shame and
0: regret? Like how do you learn about how, them? How do you how, learn yeah. from them? Exactly, it's failure, right? right?
1: Well, is failure like Churchill? Failure is never permanent, mm-hmm. right? Well, why is failure never permanent? Because you don't learn from success the way you learn from failure. Yeah, in fact,
0: success too early can cause huge problems. Oh man, I I just had a huge wave of a thought that's kind of tangential to this, but it just piqued my interest is that I think one of the psychological mechanisms that allows us to get over failure is the forgive and forget mentality, yes. but also the forget. Like the forget is important like the way our brains are constructed, we just move on. Yeah. Like just other things take our attention and the emotional resonance we yeah, have to somebody just keep else's living failure with your mistake over and over but again. But now We have something called the internet that can dredge up something from you from 10 years ago. And in any other era, these are things that we just forgot, but now they're back. And it's like the first time ever. And it's like a really, it's to me of all the weird things about social media, this is one of the weirdest. It creates a kind of permanence. where we, yeah, it's a permanence that isn't reflective of the human condition i don't think Ooh, i like that phrase right there it's a permanence that isn't reflective of the human condition yeah Yeah. and so we are starting to apply social standards to people that have never existed in the way that our brains work and don't exist in the way our brains work yeah you know and i don't think we have as a culture dealt with this problem judiciously or maturely yet (laughs) (laughs) No,
1: no. Well, it's like dating apps. I don't think we've dealt with dating apps. No. Like our biology
0: is reacting to it like a biology would. Our technology is shooting our human nature off in ways we've never even thought about before. Yeah. (laughs) It's crazy. And
1: I mean, I'm a big believer in technology is not good or evil, it's a tool. Mm -hmm. But how you use that tool, how you use any tool is essential. Well, You can use nuclear energy to produce power for millions, yeah. or you can use it to
0: kill millions. But it's such a it's such a powerful tool that we like, I think we underestimated its power. Yeah, well, that I'm, might be the most fair way to say why we're so bad at it. Well
1: what's the what's the wizard's second rule in uh in the sort of truth series? It's the law of unintended consequences. Oh yes. Yeah.
0: I do like that one quite <laughs> yeah, a bit. Like, yeah. That's true. And I think that there and I mean from what I've heard, there's kind of a there's a culture of almost naivete utopia in Silicon Valley. Yeah, It's like, we're just making the world better with all this, and it's like, and you are, you're doing so many great things, but like, we haven't had a good enough conversation of the totality of human nature and even all the negative parts that might get incentivized by some of these things. But you know what? Here's a hopeful, I like to be, I'm I'm an optimistic guy, so I like the hopeful stories too. They originally fired James Gunn from Guardians of the Galaxy 3 because of tweets from 2009, but they've rehired him. Because I don't know why exactly, but obviously it wasn't a sticking enough point. And right. And he, he said some things like, you know, 10 years ago that are, I don't remember exactly. They were unsavory, but I don't think they were like, oh, you're an evil person. But, you know, there's an outcry, so we fire. But then it's like, well, maybe we have to be a little bit less assholes to each other about things said 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think we talked about that in one of in Honestly, the American Gods. Yeah, episode. one of the great
1: things that happened in our country is that our Prime Minister survived <laughs> uh pretty horrendous
0: stuff. So like <laughs> although I bet you yeah, uh, it won't uh, escape your attention to bring it up no. when we talk about this. <laughs> no, but my point is, yes. that what are we going to do now? Like yeah. the,
1: the leader of our country did this, and mm-hmm. so the cancel culture is going to be a hard thing in Canada now. We've
0: Got to cancel cancel culture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, McWatt. I I don't know. I was I was kind of of two minds about that because I got. Like, there's an element of nobility in the motif that he felt like he had a cosmic debt to pay. But then that lasts for a second. And I'm like, well, but no, you just like, you know what? Maybe I... Well, actually, this is what I really think. The better, more honorable way to pay the penalty is to serve whatever jail time you would have to. Now, (laughs) in this specific case, obviously, this group of people who would court-martial him are... (laughs) not necessarily going by the laws as they should be but still yeah he could pay that penalty in a way that he didn't take his own life because he could be that kind of story of showboating in the plane he could tell to other pilots later in the line who maybe would showboat themselves but now have a good reason well a a a story to not do it you know yeah so i felt really bad about that okay we would again be so remiss if we didn't talk about milo (laughs) Because Milo is the capitalist of this. Yes. The he's aggressive, found a way to aggressive make money. capitalist. Yeah. Basically, he's kind of utilizing a similar system of the bureaucracy of the squadron, but in a way that's actually just making money for what he calls the syndicate, and everyone has a share. I think that's his line all the time yeah. in the book. And it, there's just these hilarious lines about how he sells something in Egypt for this much money, buys it in Florence for this much money, buys it in Spain for this much, sells it here. It's like just this roundabout way to make like a few cents on the dollar on everything. Arbitrage. Yeah. So I both liked him and then really didn't like him in the book. And I wonder what your thought on him in general. Because like a lot of the characters are bland. He stands out to me very much in this book. Hmm profiteering is an interesting concept
1: that's way too broad for us to like <laughs> sure and i don't know anything about <laughs> to discuss <it. laughs> here i think but i'm always of the opinion that monopolies are bad and the military has a
0: monopoly yeah and then um, he had a m- monopoly in the military in, in the military like
1: yeah i just
0: yeah it wasn't a good thing no I it did, ended up I being do, a I do very not bad like thing peop- i do not like people who profit off of war mm-hmm. frankly okay so just a couple points about him He bought German planes. And this is sneaky, but there's, I think there is something to the idea of international trade. And so, one of Steven Pinker's points on why the world has gotten more peaceful and there's been no major wars or no wars between major powers in the last since 1945 is that of the plethora of reasons why you don't want to bomb Japan anymore, one of them is that they make a really kick ass minivan that I drive. (laughs) Yeah. And another one is that, like,
1: the guy who owns shares in the minivan company and, mm-hmm. in Japan doesn't want his money to disappear.
0: Yeah, and so I, I think that there's an interesting, maybe not often remarked on, relationship between economic trade and relationship between countries and a desire to not be violent to each other. Yeah, well, if you want to, <laughs> it's very common among economists. Like, yes. They
1: love talking about that. This is something they talk about. Are they the common sense about it? Or yeah, is it, it's very much like... Trade reduces violence, yeah, and like here are all the statistics of, of how and why
0: now, I have to imagine that is not well received by a lot of people who don't like trade or well, like, or more th- this is something that isn't capitalistic forms of economics
1: yeah the 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 issue there is so I mean we can get a basic economic lesson about it's about advantage, about comparative advantage not complete advantage. So a one country may be better at everything than another country, but it is better for them to do the things they're best at and the other country to do their best the things they're best at cuz and there's all kinds of mathematical modeling on this, you actually end up with a with a higher value creation if you do what you're comparatively better at, even if you're competitively better at everything. Mm. so trade, like you have
0: better margins on things you're the best yeah, at.
1: yeah exactly you, exactly your time for output is better mm. so instead of thinking about it as money think about it as as actual production uh and we can't i could i'm not going to go into the full <laughs> okay, economic okay theory, yeah well that's but, that's still interesting but, and so so why trade creates more wealth which is the fundamental idea of trade is because if you're doing what you're better at You create more of it, and then therefore, more is created in the whole system. However, say you are a car manufacturer in Canada, well, you don't have a competitive or a comparative advantage of doing that because your cost of labor is higher, your uh, cost of inputs is higher than China or Japan. Any well, not Japan anymore, but like most any developing country, people are going to do it for cheaper then they'll do it for here. And so suddenly... And it's weird because
0: that's actually an improvement for them. Way In their loss. Yes,
1: Yeah, which is like the competitive, comparative yeah, advantage yeah. thing. However, there are still individual humans. And actually, this is a, an idea that I have when you were talking that I want to flesh out with you. So on a macro level, it's everyone is overall better off. Mm, okay. Because the cars are cheaper, so the consumer is better. The people that... Didn't have jobs, have jobs, and their quality of life improves vastly, but there's a group of people who lose because of this, and they're people that aren't talked about in in most economic modeling. Are these the middle class of North America? It's the people who had the jobs at the factory that was costing too much in Oshawa. Right. That now doesn't have a factory. Okay. And those people really don't like trade. And it's not because they don't understand that overall the system is better. It's because they've been left behind and they haven't been taken care of. They're kind of like collateral
0: damage of a better system. They're collateral damage, exactly.
1: So looking at the micro life of Yossarian and his friends in Catch-22 in the military, as opposed to the macro view of defeating the Germans, one could be convinced... That war is hell, <laughs> Yeah. right? And yeah, that there's right. no purpose for it ever, and and it, the, it's completely absurd. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it from the view of this ethnocentric empire that is systematically eradicating an entire people group, yeah, yeah, that they should probably be stopped. Yes, yes,
0: no, yeah, that uh, it is. It is a weirdly f- funny thing that the war being satirized is World War Two. I know. Like, like generally the- considered the most just war maybe ever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it'd be interesting to read more about... Well, I mean, Heller couldn't help the fact that that was the war he was in, so it was one he knew best. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a, that's a... Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, bearing in mind the thing I talked about earlier, about making... Like, doing the harder, bigger thing. To me, then, my next inclination is, okay what is the best step now to help those people who are left behind or collateral damage to me as like someone who doesn't want to get stuck on a problem. Like once I solve it, I want the next problem, not Mm -hmm. give me more of the same problem to keep me employed kind of thing. Like I'm like, that's the next problem. That is li- yeah, that's literally like, the, the biggest problem yeah.
1: right now in, in Western civilization. That is the, the cause of the rise of Trump. Mm-hmm. That is the
0: cause of the rise of protectionism. That's the reason for Brexit. Now, just, I mean, we don't have to talk about this long. Are there any candidates on the Democratic side that you see legitimately having at, least, at least a beginning of a solution for that problem? On the Democratic side? Yeah. I mean, the guy who's
1: proposing a solution, mm. whether it's a good solution or not, <laughs> is another up for debate would be Andrew Yang. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, he yeah, he's one of the only candidates that seems to me like he even realizes that the future is coming. <laughs> let alone has a plan for right. it. Right. Yeah. Which I
1: think yeah, I I think I have I have respect for his attempts to come up with a solution. I don't think I agree with it. Mm. I actually don't think the answer is more government. Right. I think the answer is less. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously that's my bias, but my solution to the problem would be innovation.
0: Yeah, well, here's a big fucking problem that's coming our way is that what is going to happen when two things a do we think technology can get to a point where most of the labor of our lives is done for us through automation and if we think that's going to happen what the hell are we going to do with ourselves well i mean and and that is a problem but i in a sense i guess
1: i bet i think it's a bit of a false problem and here's why okay what happened to all the guys who were taking care of horses
0: yeah but okay so, but the best version of the argument for automation as far as i know it. is let's the scale yes like the scale of the change would be unlike any other industry change you'd ever seen before it's, so I the quantity scale was just and so, speed yeah right so the quantity would be at such a level i, I think it's Stalin who's like at some point quantity becomes its own quality yeah <laughs> Right. You know, and so I'm wondering if, yeah, people who took care of horses, let's say, but if that's an industry of At the time, 48% of farmland fed horses. Yeah. Okay, but like let's say 3%, and that seems high, but 3% of a country's population had that job. Like that's a huge amount. But if you if it's like kind of grandfathered out. But you think there's about more it, time. at one at one point in time, 98% of human labor was spent growing food. Yeah. So do you think it's possible then that there, that there could be a problem of scale and speed that actually would make it yeah, too difficult? Yeah, for, for sure. At, well, here's the thing. There's
1: always growing pains.
0: Yeah, but I guess what I'm trying to tease out here is that is there a potential growing pain that's actually a growing aneurysm? like It's, it's, it's like a, an I, actual f- category difference of what we can handle as a threshold in a society for what people are doing with their time. And, yeah. and 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 I, I don't think have that, an answer to that. Like I think that that's that's a big problem. that's that could be the problem of the automation that seems that's possible certainly, to me. That's <laughs> certainly what people are
1: worried about. Yeah, significant people that I talk to are very worried about
0: mm-hmm. that. Well, and I mean, I can't imagine wanting to do anything in life except try and think about the hardest problems. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think yeah, I think for me, I see the
1: political problem of the rise of. There's a lot of anger, Mm -hmm. and justifiably so, because there there are people being left behind, and no one cares about them, and no
0: one's talking about them. And then there's just flippant remarks like "learn to code," yeah, yeah. (laughs) There's there's a lot,
1: and then or calling them the deplorables or any number of things, yeah.
0: Yeah, I I think that, I mean that's obviously uh one of my true. friends said this and I I think it,
1: he's a a member of the very left-wing party in Canada so take <laughs> this for what it's worth. I don't these are not necessarily my feelings towards Donald Trump but these were his feelings okay. and I thought it was very insightful. He said a culture that is um addicted to to opioids, impoverished by globalism and left behind by the culture wars. Of course they're going to spit up something like Donald Trump.
0: Yeah. And it, it could be because a lot worse what than him is too. Donald, yeah, way
1: worse. <laughs> and what is Donald Trump? He's their idea of what they want to be. They they want to be able to just say "fuck you" to everybody. Yeah, they want to yeah, true. They want to be sleeping with point. the beautiful women yeah. <laughs> <and> the, who
0: <laughs> clearly don't want them. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that's another story. But <laughs> so okay, I mean, this is so interesting. So I got to ask one more question about it. Is there possibly a global? equilibrium seems to me in theory eventually the countries that are catching up would catch up and then it wouldn't be affordable to have the factories in other countries nah you don't think that will ever happen
1: well okay a book that i think we should do later that's really good is it's called the The forever war great book sci-fi one of the best the world goes through cycles economics is the law of scarcity Mm -hmm. right and well
0: so do you oh man this is so hard because it's so broad. It's like, is the problem globalization or our current concept of the nation state? The The problem is tribalism. Okay. Well, that's not going anywhere, No, but that's <laughs> what I mean. So but like, do I think the problem can, But, you, is- but you know what I mean? Like we have a political system that is seemingly to me vastly inferior, not that it's like worse, but that it's just so much smaller in scale to our, economic and technological systems right like our economics and our technology is global but our politics are national well like how does that how can that work long term side of the argument which is that
1: centralization causes bureaucracies to the extreme so if you look at the eu why did why did brexit happen brexit happened because the eu was imposing broad regulation across across entire regions i.e. Europe mm-hmm. that a lot of people felt was like overly draconian overly bureaucratic here's a good example a creeks in canada there are creeks in canada that are overseen by five different regulatory bodies <laughs> just to build a bridge over it yeah you don't need more than four <laughs> <laughs> like the point the point being that centralization breeds that kind of thing yeah that bloating and how is one government like a global government, let's well, call it I I wouldn't I'm gonna understand the regional understanding. Oh
0: no, for sure not, but
1: I'm I know, it's a it's a complex problem. Like, it's an incredibly complex problem.
0: It's uh it just strikes me as like we have a outdated conception of politics. Not yes. just like, hey, we need a world government. It's like we need to rethink how we govern. Yes. From the ground up, I think to deal with the facts we basically in uh, you look at the united states and especially a lot of democratic candidates talking about the tech and i don't know much about tech but it strikes me this like you're having rotary phones in charge of the iphone x (laughs) yeah that's not sustainable
1: (laughs) well that's the argument that uh, the authoritarian states like russia and china are making yeah they're saying well we can give our population what they need and democracy actually holds us back because it, because it gives people what they want and yeah. people don't know what they want. That's a great question. Uh, there's a great book called The Fourth Revolution. It is essentially saying that that for the longest time the best form of government was democracy and that's why it succeeded. Mm-hmm. But the authoritarians have caught on to
0: ways to do capitalism, which is that... Without, without democracy. Without yeah. democracy. Yeah. It's like I hear both sides so loudly. It's like, yeah, you want the functioning, but I don't know. Like, I just don't know the quality of life you have without the liberty, the quality of what you can actually produce beyond your economic system. That's the essential question. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there we go. (laughs) Uh, Tune in next episode. (laughs) 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 All right. Luke and David solve all the world's problems. (laughs) Yeah okay here's a really really this part about milo made me think about the limits of a market like the ethical limits of a market because i want to hear or maybe even more technically how economists would define a a market limit based on ethics so uh one of the quips he makes is the germans pay their bills more promptly than some allies of ours (laughs) yeah so he's joking but not really joking i do business with the germans and they're actually better at paying their bills so maybe i'll do go more business with them so even though that they are committing a holocaust so is there a concept because you know a lot more about economics is there a concept in economics of a market failure based on ethics like what is that type of because to me that seems like it has to come from outside of economics i think they're yeah they're just seen
1: as two different things like obviously there's ethics in economics and they talk about those things Mm -hmm. but realistically the realm of economics is not the realm of ethics
0: but there are this the, the point tricky. the point of this is that there are seemingly to me like this is the perfect example the, yes. the nazis are a perfect example this is this is a this is a market limit based on ethics like you can make a lot of money and a lot of people did make a lot of money through the nazis right yeah. with the nazis oh, yeah. to me this is why we need philosophy <laughs> yes. not economics to decide these which is why you know my bias is everything bleeds into philosophy which is why i consider it the master discipline so but you're just saying that that's not really an economic yeah it's not a problem really. like the economists, no, would think, think about it, it you
1: can't let economics govern that quite there's no e- economics doesn't have an answer to that question are
0: there who do you know of any great philosophers of economics
1: well i'd say one of the living people who's really thinking about this a lot is eric weinstein
0: yes and i would yeah. recommend his yeah podcast. that's a good point
1: um I think he is doing great work on this. I think Peter Thiel mm-hmm. is another very thoughtful person on these things. They're from very different. They work together, but they're from very different um, ways of approaching the problem and the ethics of those problems. Yeah. So, yeah, you want to know someone who's really thinking through these problems? I have a guess. <laughs> Tim Urban. <Ehrman. laughs> oh, I was going to ask Elon Musk. So. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. He's not. <laughs> he's he's trying but I to tackle he, more existential problems.
0: I bet you he'd have a good insight on it, though. Yeah. Or like if you asked him. Like yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Anyway. So then the last thing about Milo that I wrote down is Milo always wants an alternative because he hates coercion. So you can starve instead of buy my food. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's a false choice, obviously. <laughs> yeah. And it's in line with the theme of the book of the false choice. That's, uh, Catch that's the, the entire, two is Essentially a yeah. false choice. How do you see, though, that sentiment playing out in actuality in capitalism, though? Or like working conditions? Like, is that just a bad company that's going to fail if it has that kind of mentality? No, no. I, I think often creating the uh,
1: scarcity is a huge... W- I mean, this is how the Iranians and the Saudis and OPEC in general controlled oil prices for a long time. Mm, okay, As they said, well, then
0: we'll just produce less and make more money. Right? Yeah. It's very common. Well, I just hated Marlo in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the last section I have for us to talk about is the section I've entitled Weirdos. So these are the people in the story that made an impact and I did not like. <laughs> so the two generals, there's General Dredle and General Peckham. Dredle is a little bit more of a hard-ass, and Peckham is... He's more cultured. He's more on the buzzwords. Like, he's a white-collar general, yeah. and Dridle is a blue-collar general. And so... The thing that was so interesting about both of them at the beginning is that most senior authorities don't know T.S. Eliot. Like, that's a line they make. They just don't know T.S. Eliot. So that was like, the thing is, with poem, the poetry, it's the humanizing effect of art is lost on them, and they have the power, and that's very dangerous because we want leaders who are more humanely and humanly conscious.
1: This was actually something, for all the faults of the British Empire, that they did very well. Mm, The idea of the gentleman and their idea of class. Yeah is it is less about money. So this is actually some so Piketty doesn't really seem to understand this and I think it's it's not well understood in general mm-hmm. is idea of class like Marx kind of co-opted the idea of class and made it all about money. Yeah. Whereas in Britain for example when um Prince William married Kate, she was considered a commoner. Her dad's worth tens Right, Even hundreds of millions of dollars. In North America, we would never think of someone that yeah. wealthy as a commoner. Well,
0: I think what's kind of cool about North America, this is my take on it on romance, is that we're a little bit more ground up. Mm. Like anyone can love anyone. Oh,
1: I love it. I love it. But but there's a nobility to the idea of there's a certain way we live. There's a code of conduct. Yeah. There's a canon that we learn. There's a lifestyle that we live. There's rules. Yeah. And... There's a nobility to the idea, uh, uh, to discipline. the stoic. It's a stoicism almost. Mm-hmm. It's not an individualistic stoicism. It's a class stoicism. Right. And there's a great book called Coming Apart by, I believe it was Charles Murray, where he talks about how the upper class in the United States particularly, because he's talking about the United States, hasn't really changed their value structure. <laughs> it's kind of the same. And if you look at the statistics, they, they have... Almost no children out of wedlock. Like right. very, very low. Divorce rates are low. Blah, 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 blah. All these rubrics that he's using to measure. And he says, but the lower class has changed their values mm. and they're suffering for
0: it. Why? <laughs>
1: hmm. Character. There's lots of questions here. Uh, yeah. And actually, this is also something that uh that David Brooks talks about a lot.
0: Yeah. Like what I'm getting out of all of this is that there's something almost necessary of having your people in political or military or martial power, I think to just kind of have a better understanding of the arts yeah. can be a, such an because important... what are the arts? They're a reflection on the human soul. Yeah, and ideally a military is protecting the ability for humans to go follow their souls. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully. And in regards to this, I remember so impactfully a line about from Hitchens saying the fatal flaw in... The dictator or the tyranny is the tank driver who can still read poetry yeah yeah and i love that yeah that aspect which is that's actually something that terrifies me about automation yeah yeah because <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't you it's not a person right so we need to make sure our ai appreciates human poetry yeah. i think that's important <laughs> Dreadel, you mean I can't shoot anyone I want to? <laughs> like, just the power goes. To, like, he's so out of touch. Like these, these, this general just so perfectly encapsulates the out of touchness of the upper, yeah, upper leadership. You well, know? and I want
1: to make it clear, I don't think there's something morally superior to the upper class. No, I think it's their pursuit of quote unquote character. Mm-hmm. As
0: far as much as they do that, is good. Yeah, and then Dreadel's there's some nepotism here. So his son-in-law's name is, I think, Corporal Mutus, And he always is punching Mutis. And he punches Mutis in the face and the chaplain sees it happen in the tent, like the officer's tent and the chaplain's like horrified that this happened, that a general would punch a corporal in the face. And so then Bedriddle gets mad at the chaplain for making him feel guilty right and so he kicks him out rather than just not be mad at moodus right it's just again more portrayal that the leaders of this army are outsourcing their responsibility and saying actually this is about you when it's really about them yeah yeah and i it's like that's clear but it's still so frustrating peckham uses all the buzzwords careful of the power game it won't always be you on top and he, this happens to Peckham when Scheifskopf becomes the yeah. general at yeah. the end, yeah. mm-hmm. who just wants to do the parades, which is so funny. That's actually a really funny part of the book. Is, <laughs> well, can I do a parade? It's like the ge- he he's a sergeant. He becomes the general of the entire army, and I think actually one of the things that they write is that Yosarian sleeps with Scheifskopf's wife yeah. during training. <laughs> There are a handful of lecherous scenes in this book. Yes, there are. But, you know, it's of the time. Cathcart, Colonel Cathcart, he talks about breasts to the chaplain on accident. I think this is part of why the chaplain is so hated in this camp is that they can't actually talk to him about anything they want to talk about. (laughs) Cathcart talks about breasts to chaplain and then he hates and blames him for the humiliation. So he's doing what Driedle did. There's no self... There's no responsibility in any of these people, hey?
1: No. Well, that's, I think, a fundamental element of being a mature thoughtful adult is Mm -hmm. actually taking responsibility and saying
0: i'm sorry yeah (laughs) or it's my fault yeah uh this was the funniest thing about cathcart to me though he can't believe that the enlisted men pray to the same god as the officers like so to him there's such a dichotomy between enlisted men and officers that when he finds out it's the same god he thinks that the chaplain is just plotting against him (laughs) you know (laughs) well and that again this, that was so funny. Heller loves,
1: loves absurdity. So, mm-hmm. like, everything he's doing is always just to make it th- something more absurd. Oh, uh, yeah,
0: because he's always... But you notice with Cathcart, and this is what I mean, like, even him, he's never at ease mentally. No. So this is such an important part of this is that it's not even worth it to be the people in power in a bad system. No. No. <laughs> because because you're always waiting to be taken out. Yeah, it's just nobody's winning here. No. It's not even a it's not even a non-zero sum. It's all below zero sum. And I think like you said in a bad system,
1: what makes a system so bad? It's all about power and not about vision yeah. if all of these guys were like we gotta beat the Germans because they're <laughs> you know fucking shit up yeah. if that was the that was the theme that's <laughs> what drove these people to yeah. do these things so
0: right? I, I wanted I guess it's like why is this Heller's take and I guess it's because there are pockets where this can happen oh I you mean know? there's pockets in every element and and life. and he must have known that this would also be not just relegated to the military like, yes. this, this kind of mentality well
1: the great art should be universal right? exactly
0: yeah all right, a couple more things. Colonel Korn, this is why I hate Colonel Korn the most. That might be the answer, to act boastfully about something we ought to be ashamed of. That's a trick that never seems to fail. And I was like, cynical, right? So like, I think the difference between Yossarian cynicism and Korn's is that Yossarian's cynicism is out of survival and Korn's is because he can. Yeah, well, because he's kind of seen
1: The Matrix, and he now mm-hmm. knows how to manipulate the system. Yeah.
0: Colonel Korn would be a perfect person, if they had integrity, to be a whistleblower. Yeah. Or or someone to stand up to it. But he's just figuring out how to. But he... So here's the, here's what's interesting about Korn in the book. He seems to me like the only, quote-unquote, villain of the book who's self-aware of their villainy. Right. You know? Like, all the other ones are just in the... Like, even the generals. They don't even know what's going on. They're just so selfish corn seems the most manipulative like he knows what's going on and he's doing it for his own gain. yes and he can articulate that which i think is what makes him the worst yeah in the in the book uh and then this one corn he wants a tight bomb pattern for a good photo civilian lives oh well so all the officers are competing with each other to look good for helping people because the tight bomb pattern is worse for the people in the town (laughs) they're bombing, or you know, they they want them to bomb, but they don't have enough time to get all the civilians out. It's just so shitty. And then at the end of the book, they're bribing Yosarian basically to say, "Hey, we'll send you home." And he's like, "But all the other men?" it's like, "Well, no, they're just they're fucked, but you can go." (laughs) And then Corn says, "You'd be a fool to throw it away for a moral principle." (laughs) So yeah, that's why I hate him. Yeah, Doctor Nika complains about how much everyone else complains. (laughs) <laughs> uh px ex- x pfc wintergreen if you're going to be shot whose side do you expect me to be on <laughs> the officers just doing and saying yeah. what they're told and yeah. what, you know this is so interesting i brought up clevenger the ideologue he's actually most hated by his own officers yeah because, because of how ideological he is captain black takes loyalty oaths competition and ideology having to one up like loving a yeah. band more than anyone else yeah like i'm the true super fan uh, it's like some really Orwellian shit that Captain Black tries to pull off. Corporal Whitcomb, he was openly rude to the chaplain when he learned that he could get away with it, which is what you were bringing out about, like being able to stand up for yourself is what the chaplain can't yeah, do, Yeah, he right? can't do
1: it. There's nothing like being the kind of person that people, like that that won't even stand up for themselves.
0: So I will, I'll say like, at the end of all this, I feel this is a, perfect example of what i kind of am hoping out of this podcast because coming in i didn't even think about character right as the (laughs) antidote or the thing to talk about for what's missing in catch-22 and yet once it's said that's manifestly the case that kind of piling of things that we notice in these stories that come out really organically in a conversation is really what the dream is of this podcast exactly and so Thank you for helping me with that, David. <laughs> David. You're welcome, Luke. And I hope that everyone listening enjoys it because probably should have said this at the beginning. Contextually, everything we talk about will be a lot easier to understand if you read the book. Yes. The, like yes. I, We, we really kind of were sparse on details in this book because it'd be hard to even talk about them because they're hard to even understand when you read own, it. Yeah. yeah. But you'll get a lot more context of the general gist of the book if you read it and it's so worth reading because it's actually very funny that's something we like the humor it's ever present i think like you said we haven't discussed a lot of satires no so this was our first mm-hmm. kind of foyer beside south yeah. park into the satire j- genre mm-hmm. so there there's like not really a deeper meaning to find no because it's lambasting something it's very know? obviously attacking a system yeah and
1: I think what we ended up doing is talking about why is the system worth attacking? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's important. Uh, yeah,
0: that's a great point. So it's very worth reading. And I chuckle every time I still go through it. It does get dark. So prepare yourself for that. And it feels like the tone, the, the content shifts, but the tone doesn't. So you're kind of weirded out by it. Because you're like, wait, really? That's what happened? Yeah. No. But I just, I love this book so much because of its kind of commitment to... The freeing of the human soul. Yeah, I, and, like,
1: I like how this book makes you think about a thing in a way you probably yeah. wouldn't before. And I think, is that not the best way to learn? Well,
0: yeah, totally. Because I'm just thinking, like, in a historical perspective, you think of all the other systems that have oppressed humanity, like feudalism or monarchy but like a like a tyrannical monarchy or what like i mean it'd be you can't even really call them political systems but just ways that people were dominated and i think the bureaucracy is the f- modern form of human domination yes because it's yeah. benign and here for are good and it doesn't have a face yeah how do you rebel against the bureaucracy mm-hmm. because everything is partly someone's job and partly not their job but yeah, there's like a huge really, responsibility, and no one. Yeah, there there is a kind of sick genius to it. I oh, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It'd be interesting to do another book like this. Maybe Brave New World would be. That would be a good one. The most yeah. kind of similar. Anyway, I love this book. This was the first time you read this book. I've probably read it five times now. Is your first time? I don't know if you have anything else you want to add about it. Reading it, thinking about it. It's not an easy read, guys, because it isn't normal. But like,
1: I think one of the great things that's happened in literature that if you really want to dive into literature and begin enjoying it has happened in the last hundred years. And that's been, why do we have to, to just follow the system? I mean, in a sense, this book is a rebellion against normal ways of writing literature. Yeah. It's like, true. It doesn't follow the, the rules. It breaking out of them to try to say something It's non-linear. It's, non-linear it's satire is jarring at times. It doesn't finish thoughts. <laughs> yeah. And the characters are odd and off-putting. They're and uncomfortable. Annoying. So it's not written to make you love it.
0: Yeah, that's it, a good point.
1: Uh, it's written to make you think. About what's happening
0: to exactly. them. Exactly. Yeah. And probably... So that's why I
1: say it's not easy. Yeah. But it's fun mm-hmm. and and it's worth it. It's one of those long, hard things. Yeah, that's <laughs> worth it. That's worth it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. I liked the, just to put an exclamation mark on the, this theme, like I I am a true believer in miliarism, the yeah. ability to improve our lot through our energies and thoughts. And I mean, technologically and even materially, that's obvious. I mean, we can live in Canada in the winter. Yes. That happened because that of happened because human of, advancement. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, people did live here, but there was very few of them, and it was pretty miserable. Well, yeah, like the, the it's a lot less miserable now <laughs> because of that. Like, we're sitting in a, it's, you know, it's not cold today, but it's winter, and but we have a furnace. Yeah. So it's fine. <laughs> so we're good. And yet, the critique, why I like this book is it's both a critique and I think a solution. It's not just a critique. You know what I mean? Because no. that's, that's self That can be self serving. It's not always, but like, if you just bash something, even if it needs to be bashed, if you don't have a solution, you haven't done your whole job yet. I don't think. Like, that's no. just my take on things, right? So, exactly, I like... Well, I don't... I,
1: that's my big problem with uh, modern academia as it's deconstructionalist to the extreme, mm-hmm. but... What's Where's the constructualism? Yeah, what's being built? <laughs> okay, maybe
0: everything is shitty. Yeah. Well, what are we gonna do about it? Well, maybe they're just not. That's the water they're swimming in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They need a, a revolutionary academic like David Parker. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think
1: I'll ever be an academic, but
0: <laughs> I I love that to use that term. The deconstruction is: hey, this bureaucratic system is both absurd. It's corroding our brains, and it's actually physically killing us. <laughs> yes. Yes. My our solution is. Don't throw out everything. Let's piecemeal work it back together using our brains and our ingenuity and our intelligence. Like, that's the antidote is the human ameliorism. Yeah. And uh I just... That so resonates with me. You know, it's like, yeah, I... You know, I go about my job. I actually can do things that make a positive impact on kids so that their lives are better. Thou mayest. <laughs> Thou mayest. Yeah. That's, there it is. So, I'm glad glad you saw it that way too and helped me even get a deeper feeling of it i was i appreciate that (laughs) i appreciate you luke (laughs) yeah anyway thank you for listening this has been another episode of really true fiction my name is luke mason and mine's david parker have a good one bye